What's up, everybody, and welcome to Anime Baby, where there are endless possibilities laid out before us. This is your host, a boy who has a right to dream, Mikey, and joining me as always is... The pirate overlord himself, your co-host, Ryan. And welcome to Summer of Toonami! Oh, finally, it's kicking off. Finally, finally kicking off. It feels like forever's for us. Yeah, (laughs) a a little later than I thought because uh, this past month has been quite busy for us. Yeah, we were very busy, actually. Like, I spent the first two weeks in Vegas, then you went to Portland. Yeah, yeah, went to Portland for the very first time. But we both had a lot of fun. A lot of fun, yeah. And then closing out the month with, like, uh, Memorial Day weekend and... AEW Double or Nothing, so it was it was really busy. Yep, we had uh, wrestling to watch, uh, we had friends to hang out with, it was, yeah, yeah, a lot, it's been taking, it's taken quite a while for us to get to this point. Yeah, and also, like, our first proper episode where we talk about a regular anime since February? I mean, technically, I mean, we got ahead of the curve we in got ahead of the curve. detour. Yeah, but yeah, last proper episode about an, a series that we recorded was all about Blade Runner Black Lotus, which we recorded at the end of February. Yes. So it's uh, been a while, because the last one we did was just uh, pretty much the background on Toonami and the history of action cartoons on Cartoon Network. But now, we're here, we're deep into the summer, we're ready to get things started, and we got, uh, we're gonna kick things off with, like an oldie, but a goodie, as this episode is all about Outlaw Star. Mmm. Classic. A quintessential Toonami show outside of the usual DBZs and Sailor Moons of the world. But I also I feel it's one that doesn't get the recognition it deserves, really. Mmm, no, it's not really one that comes up a lot today. I feel it's one of those where people, like, they know it's good, they feel it's good, but they don't feel that they need to talk about how good it is. No, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't come up in a lot of conversations, like, uh, especially, it's not even one of the first ones that comes up in conversations about Toonami and its history. No, not at all, and yet it's still fully ingrained with, like, the history of Toonami, because, like, this started, like, pretty much at, like, the turn of the millennium with the with the block, really. Mm-hmm. So, as always, before we get into that, here's a little bit of the background. As Outlaw Star is based on a manga of the same name, which ran from uh, September 20th, 1996 to May 20th, 1999, written by Takehiko Ito. A little bit of background on him. He began his career working as a manga editor, but he, he found the job boring, so he transitioned into being a mangaka. You know, he's all like, uh, editing's lame. I'm gonna do it myself. <laughs> And he started off with a one-shot manga called Good Morning Althea in 1986, which also got a one-hour OVA. And afterwards, he began his first major work, that being Uchu Iu Monogatari, or Future Retro Hero Story, which ran from 1988 to 1996. And this series would actually be the basis for a planned, like, shared universe within all his works that he calls the 
towards Star's era. And all this would lead to Outlaw Star, which takes place in this universe, but uh, wouldn't be the last one to do so. And also uh, a little bit more on him, uh, outside of manga, Ito would also work as a designer for a bunch of different animes, such as, but not limited to, Gunbuster, Pat Labor the Movie, Vision of Escaflone, and most of all, Yu-Gi-Oh! 5Ds. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he, he's a guy who's like actually like quite ambitious, despite the fact that like he's not a name that comes up very mo- often. Not really. And also, I try to look more information about like you know when was he born, any other like history, but now nah, you can't really find much about him really. Yeah, but like he is competent though. Really is, and like you said, very ambitious. Like with this shared universe, or like just looking at the designs of everything he does, like in those works and any other works. Like the guy just knows like how to design like really cool machinery and like anything really now he's got a really strong design sense at his core and back to outlaw star it would receive its anime adaptation produced by the legendary studio sunrise see our tiger and bunny episode if you want to learn more about sunrise as this series aired from january 8 1998 to june 25th 1998 officially making this the new oldest anime we've covered on the podcast The uh, previous title holder being Beck Mongolian Chop Squad from last year. Oh yeah, we're going way back, folks. <laughs> <laughs> going back to the to the nineties, bruh. <laughs> back when I was probably about what, almost four years old when this originally came out in Japan. Back when I was probably still shitting myself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I gotta, say, I'm gonna say this now. It's probably gonna be a while before something comes around to dethrone this as the oldest thing we've covered. Kind of hard-pressed to find anything that came out before 1998 that we want to cover on the show. But, I mean, it was just beyond our era. Yeah. Though, we do have one in mind that does beat it out by a few months, but uh, story for another day. So, this series would be directed by Mitsuru Hongo, whose uh, previous credits include a magical girl series called Shamanic Princess and Shin-chan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Shin-chan guy doing Outlaw Star. Oh, that's awesome. You know, it's like you go from farty poop fart to like... <laughs> cool space battles and stuff. I mean, you could write you could write an entire essay or do an entire podcast series on just like the the legacy of Crayon Shinchan and just like the pedigree of animators that worked on that, right? Who went on to do other stuff and how like it tur- got turned from like a fun little kid show in Japan to like a raunchy adult swim show here in the West. Yeah, very odd. Very odd, but kind of fits in a way. Yeah, kind of. And uh, the scripts are written by Katsuhiko Chiba. And uh, for the dub side of things, the series would be originally licensed by Bondi Entertainment, rest in peace, and produced by Zero Limit Productions. And the dub would be directed by Wendy Lee, with scripts by the team of Carol Stanzioni, Gavin Glennon, Leah Sargent, and Mary C. Mason. And the series would also be licensed for uh, network broadcast by The Cartoon Network. Originally aired on Toonami from January 15th, 2001 to February 21st, 2001. However, that came with a caveat, though. Yeah! <laughs> This show was uh, not really for kids, shall we say, but uh, they somehow managed to get it down to a TVY7 rating. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and I you mean, know what that means, folks. Oh, yeah. Just, TV edits. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, getting that airbrush tool a lot of work for this one. Oh, man. It's like, it's and, it, and that, that, that must have been a, a very tough job. For those people. Yeah, because uh, the edits were made by Cartoon Network themselves, but they specifically had to, like, work within, you know, like, regulations, but also trying to maintain the integrity of the story. At what point do you just say it's not worth it? I feel like, considering this came out in 2001 here in the States, and it aired, like, three years prior, 
you think someone would have known what happens throughout the series and maybe thought, you know, maybe this isn't really for kids. Maybe we should save this for our adult swim block. Yeah, or even just or even just say like, you know what? Just drop it. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's adapt let's bring over something else. Let's 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 get something else on Toonami. Yeah, let let someone else take Outlaw Star. <laughs> and also the fact that it aired uh, on TV for like only a month. That may sound short, but keep in mind this was when Toonami was every weekday, so every day we were getting new episodes rather than having to wait a week for new episodes. I will admit a lot of this has kind of missed my memory though. A little bit too for me, yeah. As just like the short window of airtime and then like kind of move into Adult Swim over a year later. Right. I th- I want to say the first time I ever saw the series was maybe on like was maybe in the future. Yeah, same here. And eventually Bandai and Cartoon Network would lose the rights to Outlaw Star and it wouldn't be until 2017 when Funimation, now Crunchyroll, would rescue the series complete with an all new Blu-ray release. And I feel it was like after that point was when I started to take note about Outlaw Star. Like, I think I remember a specific moment where, like, uh, we had a party with a bunch of our friends watching a bunch of anime, and one of them brought in, uh, I think, the old Bandai Outlaw Star DVDs, and we watched the first episode, and I'm just like, oh man, I was missing out, this looks awesome. <laughs> and later that same year, Outlaw Star would make its grand return to Toonami, now on Adult Swim, which means uh, this time it's uh, uncut, uncooked, and uncensored. <laughs> And this was the first time I think both of us watched the series from beginning to end. Yeah, it really was. Just It was just one of those things I really wanted to get to, but just never found the time or the opportunity to. Right, right. So many other things came out after it, you know, to just, like, take your, like, mind off it. And like we mentioned before, Outlaw Star being one of those series where, like, everyone knows it's good, but, like, you don't see people, like, clamoring to, like, really put, put that over. And I think they're... Or maybe I think there are reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe not deserved. Maybe some maybe in some small ones deserved, but I don't know. I think there are reasons there. I can think of one reason that could, that's kind of obvious, considering the time frame when it came out, <laughs> and also the fact that Studio Sunrise, as they were working as around the same time, the late '90s, and whatnot. Studio Sunrise was also working on another space adventure, space western, space opera series. Little thing, you may have heard of it, uh, Cowboy Bebop. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, before I did the research, I really wanted to believe that, like, no, it's not possible. They could not have synced up that closely <laughs> as far as, like, airtime goes. Like, the manga came before it. Yeah. I was like, no, it couldn't be. No, it did. It did. They were working on roughly probably around the same time. And, like remarkable similarities between the two. Yeah, not only in the original, like, Japanese airing and, like, the original series, but also, like, even on the dub side of things, because you have similar actors that cross over between the shows, too. Yeah, it's really hard not to compare these two. Yeah. (laughs) Like, they have some big, they have major differences between the two, but they're a little, they come a little too close to home to each other. It, yeah, definitely. The fact that they even came, in the fact, down to even the fact that they take their names from, like, the name of the fucking ships. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh. <laughs> you know, maybe some people over at Sunrise are kind of looking over each other's, like, animation booths saying, like, hey, can I uh, just look at your work for a little bit? Okay, okay, cool, cool, thanks. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, today we're going to give it its proper due, outside, outside of that context. Like, we're going to see, like, what makes it work on its own. Yes. Over 20 years since the original Toonami broadcast, we're, we're going to be talking about that today. So, Summer of Toonami kicks off 
with Outlaw Star. So without further ado, let's start the show. Kick off with an epic opening space battle, just to give us a little taste of what's to come, and then we smash cut to a fucking banger of an OP. Through the Night by Masahiko Aramachi. This OP, it fucks, fucks so hard. Strap yourself in and feel the G's. <laughs> this opening does actually kick ass. It does, just... The opening just always gets me hyped. The band it a little band it just ah my god, it's so good. Like ooh, it it, it it sinks real well with the animation as well, which also gives you a nice clean taste of what's to come. Yeah, just, this is a beautiful looking series. Just killer song with killer animation, killer action, killer babes. Just if you want to sell someone on Outlaw Star and you only have a couple of minutes, just show them the OP. But very, but very 90s in its tunes as well. Oh, it's so 90s. It's the way it's like kind of synthesized a little bit. Yeah. Like the production. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's got that 90s touch to it. It really does. And uh, we can also talk about the ending here. The first one being uh, Hiro no Tsuki by Arai Akino. It's all right. Pretty good. I mean, the, the endings and like both, like the, the endings in general are just like, you know, just like soft ballads with like these like soft images of like women and stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. It's, it's kind of contrasts with like how hard the series goes but you know i think it tries to speak the gentler soul that the series has though yeah it's a you know make another comparison to cowboy bebop it's not quite like the combination of like their opening and ending you know tank and real folk blues which like pair perfectly well together but yeah, it's it's still a nice song. It's a it's a nice little uh, come down after like the uh the action we get for throughout each episode yeah it is quite nice also, a uh, fun fact here, a lot of the uh, animation from the cold open and partially in the opening uh, come from a test pilot that was originally made in 1996. Mm. Like, uh, this is something that I, o- I only just recently found about, and apparently not a lot of uh, Outlaw Star fans even know about, too. But you can find it on YouTube, just like this little pitch pilot that just kind of showcases the series and also shows a lot, a lot of the differences, you know, like in certain weapons, certain characters that were in there, the designs, and certain characters that had to be cut. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's very fascinating. And it also shows that, yeah, they've been playing the series for a long time since that was made in 96 and this came out in 98. 
Eh, I guess it, yeah, I guess a series like this would have required a little bit more planning. Space. Oh, hey, it's the uh, the opening shot to the classic uh, Broken Promise Toonami music video right here. <laughs> and then, like, the next episode even continues that uh, music video with, A boy has a right to dream. There are endless possibilities stretched out before him. <laughs> the openings in general just feel like Toonami promos. <laughs> you know, maybe that's why Toonami wanted to really keep this show on, because they saw each of the opening narrations and thought, We can make promos out of these. <laughs> like, they're already made for us. It's perfect. And also we have a simple yet effective way to get over our lead's connection to the world beyond the stars as he's looking off into the sunset as a spaceship slowly launches into space. This lead is one Gene Starwin, played here by Bob Buckles. And if that name sounds familiar, you may remember him as the ADR director for Beastars and Dora Hidoro. <laughs> and he's also the uh, scriptwriter and uh, director for the dub of the uh, first two seasons of Digimon and the movie. Yeah, he, he still gets around these days. Still gets around, you know, like, part of, like, some shows you watch when we were younger and, like, still working on stuff that we've covered just, like, recently. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, the name, Gene Starwind, is actually a reference to, uh, it's like a dual reference here to, uh, Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry and also Star Wars as Starwind is, like, Skywalker. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a little, it's a, it's pretty on the nose, I gotta say. <laughs> and, uh, Gene here is joined by his, uh, young ward, Jim Hawking, played here by Brianne Siddle who also has a Digimon connection as she played uh, Tommy in Frontier, uh, Calamon in Tamers, and Coromon in Adventure. Yeah, Digimon represent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love them garlic champions. Yeah. <laughs> and also the name Jim comes from uh, James T. Kirk from the original Star Trek. Yeah, re re really understanding this guy's influence. Yeah, like, Ito has done interviews where like he is unapologetic when it comes to the influences of Star Wars and Star Trek. Like, when he's writing something, he kind of thinks, like, you know, how would this work in... Star Wars and Star Trek, and then now, and then he translates that to his own work here. Mm. And as you go through the series, there's like a lot of stuff you can compare to the two. Ah, uh, yeah, there is. <laughs> you know, even here, like this planet, uh, Sentinel Three. You know, a bit of a wretched hive of scum and villainy here. Yeah, he he rides that line pretty close. And even within our first action scene, which is another way to simple way to get over our characters, it's it's just a Han Solo scene. It is literally Han Solo as Gene runs afoul of a criminal named Death Rob, who's out for revenge because Gene killed his brother. And it's it's pretty much like the Cantina scene where like Han shoots Greedo. Yeah, Gene Gene shoots first in the scene. He does shoot first. <laughs> and uh, this guy is also like a cyborg man, and Gene just like kind of carries himself, you know, very cool, confident, and cocky as he just kills this guy. Kills him in cold blood. And then he, like, celebrates by ditching Jim to go get his rocks off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's a cool guy, but he's also kind of a dick. And the following day, we get to see their uh, day job as uh, their repairmen, and they fix everything from tractors to relationships. Kind of generic smuggler, bounty hunter, mercenary type, like, like we'll do anything for money. <laughs> <laughs> so I wish I could have seen uh, Gene and Jim do some marriage counseling, because they say they fix relationships, but we never see it. Yeah, we never see that once. Come on. Come on, just like... Just have them at a bar, you know, they see a couple arguing, and then they step in and say, like, hey, what's what's the problem over here? Maybe we can help things out here. And again, I guess they get, I guess they did help fix one character's, like, marriage problem later on. I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the boys get a job from a woman named Rachel, and she seems pretty sus, but her records show that she's safe. And also, like, if you look on the screen, it says her figure is very good, and her measurements are dynamite. Oh my god. <laughs> Uh, she wants some real heavy-duty parts and a bodyguard for these uh, creepy, lanky-looking robots, which I can't get enough of, like, these r weird robots that just kind of plop down. They're all gangly, and, like, 
then they all separate like there's two of them behind one of them and it's like it's really cool they're a good foot they're a good foot soldier for these criminal groups they encounter and then we get like a sick chase scene as we run from these pirates that are probably from space like holy crap this like the, the animation in the series is just wonderful all throughout it is and also uh animated on film oh man just <clears throat> it's so good just there's something about 90s hand-drawn anime animation that just it's just pure aesthetic it just looks so good especially back when like they just squashed and stretched as much as they did with these characters yeah look because like everyone all the animators were influenced by like classic like western cartoons so they added that influence into their shows granted that does come with a lot of repeated animation in some parts it does yeah <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't help but notice that yeah but that's a small price to pay i mean yeah you, you drew those cells you gotta kind of you gotta keep them yeah uh, so these pirates are after Rachel, who turns out to be a woman named Hot Ice Hilda, played here by Mary Elizabeth McGlynn, as she's an infamous outlaw who's got a treasure that these space pirates want. This whole chase, it's just really cool. Like, the one thing I like is Gene comically pulling out different weapons, firing them to no effect on this pirate that's also riding all the robots that are forming like a hover pad, <laughs> that they use magic, uh, Tau magic, to uh, keep hovered in the air. Yeah, like, the series even has, like, its own version of, like, force powers, yeah. kind of, it, but it's also not, like, super well explained. No, but it's it's pretty cool, and you just see, like, these people, like, these priests just, like, holding their hands up going, Pagua Sampa, Pagua Sampa, Pagua Sampa. Right, they have, like, a mantra that they, like, repeat constantly yeah, to which, perform their powers. Yeah, to power them up. Like, it's it's kind of cool to see. It's, I really dig it. Yeah, it is pretty cool. It's one of those things where it's, like, you don't, like, who fucking cares if they don't explain it? It's just awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Then Gene pulls out his signature weapon, a caster gun, which fires special magic bullets that are effective against Tau priests and their magic. Hell yeah! This thing is cool. Like this is like this is like this. This is this. Should, this. <laughs> I'm trying to find the right words. It's it deserves to be more iconic than like it deserves. It does. <laughs> a like single shot, almost like I don't know what is it like a breech loading almost where like. A, like, where you just load in around and, like, it fires, like, magic bullets. Yep, and you have different magic caster shells that perform different things and, like, combat different Tau magic. But it's also, like, an, but it's also, like, an antique, too. Like, it's hard to find actual new casings. Yeah. Like, that's a big plot point in the series where, like, they, they struggle to find caster shells and, like, even when they do get some, you only get, like, maybe one or two tops right it's like a it's gene starwin's iconic secret weapon and yeah he can't use it in just any situation he has to save it for like the truly tough enemies you know that's one thing gene has over spike does spike have a signature gun i don't think so i mean no not really i mean he uses his fists but still <laughs> i mean spike has existential angst yeah but... he does have that too <laughs> So Gene fires the caster shell, which kills the lone pirate, and it's so cool. So, what's Hilda's treasure? A naked girl in a trunk. Or, if you watch this on Toonami in 2001, she has a digitally added underwear on. Uh. <laughs> it's a classic edit. Like, if you want people talking about, you know, anime TV edits, like, that's one that always pops up. Mm-hmm. Always. And if you're actually curious to see how Outlaw Star looked back in the day, all of the episodes are actually available on, uh internet archive, like someone uploaded TV rips of the original Toonami broadcast. I guess who else will care to actually, like, you know, preserve that? Yeah, like, they were lost media for a while, but they've been found and uploaded online. <laughs> but 
But yeah, this was only just the beginning of Outlaw Star, but it's a great way to start off the series. Introduce the characters, show some cool weapons, cool fights, and then set everything up for later. Mm, yeah, it's a solid opening. And uh, we even, like, moving on to the next episode, we even get, like, the rest of the speech that makes up the Broken Promise video. You know, all men were once boys. And we even see a bit of a young boy, Gene, here with his father, who looks to be an astronaut. Which uh, sets up some stuff for later, you know, his connection with his father and space in general right here. Damn, the narration for the series is slick and sweet. And the narrator, played by Bo Billingsley. Ah, uh, there's another connection. There's Jet. Ah, <laughs> uh, there's Jet, the opening of every episode. <laughs> explaining explaining all the characters and their backgrounds and, like, giving out lore. I, I like to think that in Cave this is Jet telling the story to Spike one day. <laughs> it's like, hey, Spike, let me tell you the story of Outlaw Star. A boy has a right to dream. Oh, man. Jeez, <laughs> uh, Jet, not this story again. <laughs> so let's meet this girl in the box. Her name is Melfina. So in helping Hilda here, Jean and Jim have gotten themselves into a whole lot of trouble, something bigger than they could possibly imagine. As the pirates known as the K-Pirates, they want Melfina for their own personal gain. Hilda caught wind of this and decided she'll have a bit of that and snatched her up, and now she's on the run, too. And speaking of which, uh, pirates here... Led by a duo of Roy Fong, played here by Simon Prescott, and Soy Len, played here by Wendy Lee. And all while this is going on, Melfian is slowly but surely uh, resuscitating, and also giving us a nice timer, too. You know, it's going like three minutes to resuscitation, two minutes, one minute. All the while trying to hold off this siege. And Gene is like super all in on fighting this, these pirates. Like, he doesn't have much of a clue what's happening right now, but whatever. He's gonna have some fun and like fire his caster shells at them. <laughs> Though uh, he's not all cool like he is with the chase, as he's also kind of bumbling in some bits. Like, there's even bits where, like, he tries to fire a caster shell, but it turns out to be a dud, so he's just kind of, like, left holding his lad. Yeah, for as cool as Gene is, he's he, he's got his goofy moments. He does, which I find charming about him. It's it's extremely charming. And also, while Gene fights, Jim and Hilda escape, and uh, Jim, we see him one hand carrying the case with Malfina in it, no problem. And it's like, geez, this kid's... Got beef. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Stronger than he looks. I don't see any, like, gravity-defined projectors on that case. Yeah. <laughs> so time is up, and Melfina is awake, and she's played here by Emily Brown. Fun fact, one of her earliest anime roles was uh, Robotech when she was 13 years old. Wow, really? Yeah. Holy shit. And I feel she does a good job as Melfina, though I'm disappointed to see that uh, in my research she doesn't really have any roles past 2002. Hmm, really? Yeah, but there's a good reason for that, as I found out that she and her sister, Rachel Coleman, created a TV series that teaches sign language called uh, Signing Time. Kind of had different variations over the years and continues to this very day with, like, its own website with uh, online courses. Oh, how cool. Yeah, so very nice, you know, not doing anime, but, uh, you know, doing el something else that's very good for people. Anyway, they escape in Hilda's ship and warp to an outlaw hangout called Blue Heaven. And here is when we really see uh, Gene's kind of nervousness about traveling in space. Like, he's kind of almost, like, feeling sick, really, when he's, like, as soon as everything launches, and, like, Jim and Melfina kind of have to comfort him a little bit, you know, calm him down, because he's pretty much on the verge of having a panic attack. Yeah, he really is. We see, like, what happened to cause all this, because in the past, him and his dad got caught up in a space fight, and then his dad sacrificed himself to save Gene, and, like, that kind of instilled some trauma with him to this very day. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to understand why he's feeling all uh, anxious about all this. Yeah, and like how it takes a while for him to like really get used to space travel. But I like that. I like that there's that buildup in the series, that he has to actually get used to uh, going into space. 
And once they reach Blue Heaven, Jim and Melfina go clothes shopping. And here we get her outfit for the rest of the series, which I think is cute. <laughs> it is quite cute. You know, the skirt, the suspenders, and like the poncho type thing. And the nice high heels that she can run around everywhere in and no problem. F- <laughs> fuck her feet up with. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Jean and Hilda hang out in a booby bar and rub up some uh, outlaws. And then they uh, go back to a hotel together. You know, they got their own room with a king size bed for a little. <laughs> Yeah, they fuck in the manga. They did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's pretty explicit in the, yeah. in the comic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's more obvious later on through some flashbacks, but uh, here it's more ambiguous. But yeah, yeah totally. They boned. Yeah. So, Jeannie Hill to batter the outlaws and find out that somebody sent the goons after them. Someone named McDougal. So, they bail as more goons are coming, and as they try to evade their pursuers here, they come across another ship. One that's registered to the Katarl Katarl Empire. It's a moment that probably went back when this aired in 2001. A lot of young Outlaw Star viewers experienced their first uh, awakening, shall we say, with uh, the introduction of a certain someone here. <laughs> As we're introduced to Asia Clan Clan, played here by Lenore Zahn. By the way, Lenore Zahn, she's actually a Canadian politician from 2009 up until last year. Yeah, holy crap, that's what happened to her since then. Yep. <laughs> also, I found out that she was the original voice of Rogue in 90s X-Men. She also did, uh, I think she also did voice did a voice in Dragon Tales, too. Yeah, she did, too. <laughs> Man, she got around. She got around. <laughs> but yes, Aisha Clan Clan. First time I saw her, I was like, yes. Yep, my, yes. my, my character of the series. I am... All in on Asia, you know, not to be horny on Maine, but seriously, she's awesome and I love her so much. And she is pretty cool. Even even if when she when she's uh, acting as the character, she really has to wreck her voice. Holy shit, just, like, the amount of, like, squeaks and screeches that Lenore Zahn had to do, like, had to hurt. Oh, it's, uh, it kind of hurt my hearing. It did. <laughs> like, major respect for her for pulling that off. Yeah, major respect, and I hope she didn't get any damage out of it. Yeah, hopefully not. Because it, it sounds rough in parts. It does. But, like, she plays a very charming character here. Someone that always makes me smile every time she's on screen. I'm just all like, there's Asia, there she is. Oh, she's gonna is she going to do something stupid? Yep. You know it. <laughs> <laughs> is she going to make everyone, like, annoyed? Yep, there it is. <laughs> and we all love her for it. And by the way, the Katarl Katarl, they're a race of humanoid cat people, too. Oh, we got cat people. <laughs> and also the name is fun to say. Katarl Katarl. Katarl Katarl. It's, it's a little hard to say. But say that five times fast. Katarl 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 Ah. You folks at home, give it a try. It's that C and T consonant sound. It's like hard to sound off. Yeah, it's it's weird, but also at the same time, kind of works. Kind of. Kind of. So the Katarl Katarl and our heroes get themselves into a game of space chicken here, but they're able to get away... Well, Aisha captures the outlaws that are pursuing them, but uh, she really wanted to get Hilda, though. And also, uh, letting Hilda go leads to Aisha getting demoted and being forced to stay on Blue Heaven for the time being. And side note, like, in the scene where she's, like, talking to her commanding officer and she's being demoted, kind of distracting as there's a Katarl Katarl in the background talking to her, explaining the situation, and he's voiced by Darren Norris. (laughs) Aisha clan clan. Our reports clearly state that Hilda's ship, Horace, was right under your nose and you dared to let him get away. But, Governor, at that time, uh, I did not have that information! Lady Asia, that's simply a com cube you're looking at. It's just a recording. <laughs> and therefore, Asia Clan Clan, 
your rank as ambassador plenipotentiary is hereby stripped. You will remain at Blue Heaven as a resident officer and gather information regarding the galactic ley line. Oh no! Governor, I beg of you, that's way too harsh! I'm telling you, he can't hear you. The order Honey Honey will depart Blue Heaven and continue tracking Horus. That will be all. <laughs> yeah! All right, all right okay! I mean, it wasn't too distracting. It's like, what? Like, I'm gonna be distracted by Darren Norris and like an anime this old? Like, it's not, it's not that far fetched. Now, nah, but but also, it's kind of weird that we did Tiger and Bunny earlier this year, and now we did this, and like, he showed up again. I mean, yeah, that's it's. But like, it's it's nice to see though. It is nice to see to know that he did anime. Yeah. Anyway, the K pirates are back, and they found where Hilda was gonna meet her comrades, and then killed them all before she could arrive. So now she's all alone, and all of this is thanks to Ronald McDougal. Not quite Ronald McDonald, but, you know, close enough. <laughs> Played here by John Snyder. You know, if they're going to get out alive, Gene's got to overcome his past baggage and help in the fight here. And he manages to do well enough to get them to escape, but uh, not before Roy Fong places a seal on their ship so that he can find them later. As they arrive on a planet called uh, Farfalis. As it's time to get a new ship, one with sick grappler arms attached to it. Yeah, in, in this universe, uh... <laughs> now this will sound stupid... <laughs> But bear with us. Lots of the spaceships have arms. Yes. And fight with each other and grapple with each other, hence the name. And even though it looks really silly at first. Like, imagine these almost like spaceships with these little noodle arms just swinging around and everything. Yes. <laughs> it's It's a lot cooler than it sounds. Yes, it is. And hey, I will say... I can't name many other... I don't think I can name another work that actually does something like this. Just, like, ships flying around space with arms and just grappling with each other <laughs> and punching each other and wielding guns. It's it's unique. You know, it's kind of like they thought, oh, you know, that Gundam's pretty cool, but uh, they need more practical modes of transportation. What if we take the arm part, slap it onto a bunch of ships, and go with that? Well, it's 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 also just silly to me that, but it's also kind of silly to me that like it's an actual arms race though in this world. <laughs> a that, literal like, arms race. Yeah, it's a literal arms race <laughs> to put arms on spaceships because it makes them that much better in space combat. As if a gun or a laser just doesn't do that enough. Now you can do so much with arms. <laughs> this laser is good on my ship, but you know what'd be easy, would be better if it had arms to hold the laser. Yeah, if it was like a physical giant gun and arms were holding it to fire, <laughs> pulling a trigger. <laughs> well, yeah, guns on ships are cool, but but like you know what's cooler, Glocks, and you know what's cooler, an arm holding a Glock and shooting it. <laughs> so let's put like an arm on a ship so it can hold a Glock. And shoot gangsta style. <laughs> Only thing that could make that better is if, like, they get two giant revolvers and they twirl them ocelot style. <laughs> you know, just the... <laughs> twelve shots. This time I've got twelve shots. Oh my god. <laughs> but no, it's a, unique, it's a unique thing the series is going for. It. Yeah, it's the... Next to the caster gun, it's this series trademark. Yep, ships with arms. And we meet our new ship, the XGP-115A2. Built with a pirate's brains and Space Force's technology. And uh, also the ship is actually designed by uh, Shoji Kawamori, who's uh, done mech designs for uh, Macross and Gundam. 
And yet, this thing's so cool. Mm-hmm. I love this ship. It's a nice, solid ship to have for our have for our series mains. You know, I would say like on par with like say the Bebop or the Aloha Oi. Mm-hmm. And the ship is complete with its own AI, introducing Gilliam Two, played here by Peter Spellos. Uh, you may remember this actor being the voice of Waymon in Digimon. You know, where he did a, a Rodney Dangerfield impression for some reason. Oh God! It was the style at the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I could honestly listen to this guy narrate anything oh definitely he's got a very nice calming voice that is very befitting for a computer character i wish there was a way to make gilliam like my siri on my phone Mmm, would make for a very good siri it would be anyway gilliam controls most of everything within the ship except for navigation as it seems melfina is the key to that one gene jim and melfina prepare to launch while hilda deals with the k pirates and we see how exactly melfina operates the ship as she's able to mentally link up with the ship which involves her being naked in a tube. I mean, it's 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 got some tasteful covering up. Though. It does. It does. You know, like uh, the ship knows knows where to stop when it comes to showing skin. But also, just like rips off her clothing every time, and then like magically puts it back on when she exits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's like X-ray gel. Like I don't know. Like it does. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. I mean, considering we did Darling in the Franks, this isn't the weirdest, horniest thing we've talked about. Yeah, not not by a long shot. But yeah, this whole thing is like very the ship like it's so fascinating and creative like not only with like the grappler arms but also like melfina being like the operating system too that it needs like these different parts it needs both the computer and gene and melfina all operating and all at once and it's also got like other spots for people to take up to operate weapons and stuff yeah it's got like that classic you know space adventure bridge at the front of the ship Mm -hmm. everyone has to pull their weight in on this thing Though, like, I love with all of this technology, you still need a key to start it off. <laughs> <laughs> you can still lose your keys to your spaceship. Yeah, or, like, you know, you need to, like, get an oil change or, like, it's too cold in space. You just, like, try to fire it up and you just hear the the rattling going, like, oh, you need a new battery. I like that roughness, though, that it still has that kind of rough edge to it. Yeah. It makes it kind of feel a little more realistic. It'd be great if, like, if you have to, you need to get out and push to, like, get the battery rolling. <laughs> you know, put it in H. <laughs> So while the K-Pirates attack the ship, Gilliam opens the hangar's airlock, which starts to uh, suck out some of the pirates that followed them along in towards the ship. And uh, fun fact here, if you pause at the right moment as, you know, uh, the airlock is open and stuff's flying everywhere, you can actually see Pikachu amongst the debris. Ah. Uh. <laughs> you know, who's that Pokemon? It's Pikachu! And he's going to die in space. Oh, <laughs> uh, poor Pikachu with his eyes just like popping out of his head yeah (laughs) it just slowly freezes in space like cars and jojo oh outlaw star you're you're (laughs) you got that you got that charm everyone likes (laughs) so the pirates get back on the offensive until ron mcdougall and his brother harry played here by steve staley run interference as they want to wipe out the xgp and uh, fun fact here apparently the mcdougall brothers are anime only characters they were not in the original manga Oh, interesting. No, they weren't even created by uh, the creator Ito. They were created by like the rest of the production staff at Sunrise. Oh, that's kind of weird. It, it really is, but honestly, you couldn't tell, because they kind of do fit well in the series as, uh, you know, baddies. Yes, they're overarching antagonists for our, uh, for, our prote- for our protagonists. So the brothers look to have taken out the XGP, or have they, as Jean's able to navigate the ships to safety. And even smashes through an asteroid, too, which is great. Mm. And they get into a grappler duel with the pirates, and the pirates end up anchoring the XGP, but Hilda is able to, like, get outside and free them 
but she ends up sacrificing herself to do so as she and the pirates kind of fall into, like, uh, the planet below. No, but it's an effective sacrifice, though. She she had actually stuck around for this long to where it felt like she could have actually been, like, a main, like one of the main characters for the series. Yeah, and, you know, like, her, even though she dies, like, her presence kind of does stick around through the series as being a bit of a motivator for Jean and the crew. And they even named the ship after her, too, the Outlaw Star. Uh, it's a cool name. Yeah. And that pretty much is, like, the introductory arc to the series, you know, like, setting everything up and then closing with us getting this new ship right here. Mm-hmm. It's very effective. So now we uh, head back to Blue Heaven in order to figure some stuff out and also to give the Outlaw Star a fresh coat of paint as we gotta get this baby full gear ready. And also, since we're back on Blue Heaven, remember who we left back here? Oh, uh, yeah, Aisha's back, baby! Mm-hmm. And she's out for revenge, too. <laughs> And also, I, I like a bit here where, like, she's screaming, where is Hilda? And then Jean's all like, oh, she's dead. Just kind of, almost kind of flippant in a way, too. <laughs> like, like I said before, he's kind of a dick. I mean, yeah, he, he sees a lot of death go by in his life, too, so makes yeah, some sense. Makes some sense. And uh, we find out uh, what Aisha's after, and it's the location of a thing called the Galactic Ley Line. What is that? And that's what everyone wants to know. But uh, Aisha tries to get what she wants by force, and holy shit, she is strong, like... <laughs> This uh, confrontation here, like, really gets over her strength as she's, like, smashing through, like, sidewalks and everything and also tries to go into, like, a beast form, too. Yeah, Katarl Katarls have, like, freakish cat strength. <laughs> and then, like, they have, like, a special ability where, like, they go all beast-like and it's uh, kind of like the uh, the Minx Sulong ability in One Piece, too. Well, f- well, fuck, you could just say werewolf. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They're werewolves. Yeah, they are. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, Blue Heaven doesn't have a moon, so she can't use her power ah, here. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but Jean and Melfina get away from Aisha, and the two kind of have a nice little heart-to-heart. You know, Melfina's questioning her own existence, and Jean vows to help her find those answers. And it even puts over how, like, you know, she's, like, not technically human, but also more human than human in a way. You know, a very down-to-earth person with feelings and worries like everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's quite nice. <laughs> That was close. Looks like we finally lost her. Oh no, are you alright, Jean? There's a bench over there where you can sit down. Maybe I'll never get over this. Hey, what's the matter with you? Haven't you seen flowers before? They're artificial. These flowers were made, just like me. Why was I made? Who made me? And what did they make me for? I... Who am I and why am I here? never seen an android like you before. Even when I'm this close to you, I can't tell that you're not human. You eat, you feel sad, you're even able to worry about your own existence. I bet Hilda could have given me the answer, but now she's no longer here. Oh! Oh, that hurts! Please stop doing that to me! You're surprised? You feel pain? 
You even complain. <laughs> Bet you could search the whole galaxy and never find one like you. Don't worry, I'll find you an answer someday. You're my responsibility now. I promised Hilda I'd take care of you, and I'm going to. Take care of me? Yeah, and our having another mystery or two to solve won't really change anything. Don't worry, Melfina. I'll find your past. Ah. But to be perfectly honest, we don't have a single clue to go on. Of course, asking the pirates would be the easiest thing, but there's no way. I'd rather eat shit. Yeah, I feel the same way. You'd rather eat shit? <laughs> no, I mean... I guess so. Melfina, it'll be a long road, but I'd like for you to come with us. If I won't be too much trouble. You won't be any trouble. Anyway, without you, it would be a royal pain in the you-know-what to fly the outlaw star. Right! Alright, that settles it. It's, pre it's pretty cute, and also I, I do like this little back and forth here. Jean's all like, we don't have a single clue to go on. Of course, asking the pirates would be the easiest thing, but there's no way. I'd rather eat shit. And Melfina goes, yeah, I feel the same way. Jean goes, you'd rather eat shit? She's like, uh, no. Uh, guess so. <laughs> it's cute. I love it. Yeah, nice little dialogue in the series. Yeah, and they do have, like, plenty of cute interactions throughout the entire series. I do like how they build the uh, relationships between the two. I mean, I could do with a little, I could do with a little less with uh, Jean's uh, come-offness, with, like, uh, just getting a little too... Uh, Clingy and trying to get sexual with Melfina in parts. Yeah, he tries to get fresh a lot. Yeah, I could do without that. But, like, they, they establish that he's, like, not... That he has his, like, like shitty, like, aspects. Yeah. And thankfully Jim's there to kind of bash him over the head when he thinks like that. Right. Anyway, enough sweetness as Aisha's back. And one thing I really like about her is that uh, the way she moves, like, we talk about the squash and stretch, but also, like, the faces she gives. Like, they're all really just, like... They just kind of pop. Like, they're really good. Uh, yeah, she, she's one of the most uh, humor-centric characters in the series, so she gets a lot of the funny moments. You know, nice work, animators. And uh, just the bit where, like, she tries to go beast mode again, but then she just collapses because she's hungry. <laughs> and then they just go out to dinner. <laughs> and then once she's full, she wants to fight again. And then Jean just, like, pops her with a caster shell and she just goes down. <laughs> and then tells the people at the restaurant, hey, uh, everything's on her. Okay, <laughs> thanks, bye. <laughs> So the gang gets back to the Outlaw Star, and she is looking good. Love the striking red color with the blue highlights. It looks so nice. Mm -hmm. And also, I do I do like that when uh, Funimation released their Blu-ray, they actually had designed like the limited edition to look like the Outlaw Star with like the same color scheme and everything. Ah, very nice. I like those touches. So we're heading back to Sentinel Three to meet up with a broker who can financially help our crew. Introducing Fred Lowe, played here by Ezra Weiss. Uh, Gene and Jim have a history with this guy, and they don't like him too much. And he's uh, very, very forward towards uh, Gene and Jim, but very dismissive towards Malfina. Based on the way he speaks and acts, it's pretty clear that he's meant to be gay. In, not, not just any gay, a special breed. A, he's 90s gay. 90s gay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can guess like what that entails. Oh, but what does that entail, Anu? Uh, easy gay panic jokes. Some real creepy bits with Jim where he says, like, ooh, if only you were a few years older, I'd get with you. <sighs> and he doesn't like women because gay men hate women. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and even his goons manage to make a point that uh, he's in love with Gene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's a something. It's a lot. 
it's 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 a it's a breed that uh, has kind of died out. It has, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> even though the people who work on Persona games try to bring it back. Eh, yeah. But uh, yeah, just uh, you know, if you out there haven't watched Outlaw Star, just be warned. Because the series is great, but this is probably one of the aspects where I don't think it's so good. Yeah, they, they, they go a little hard with some of the uh, uh, flaming gay jokes with this guy. Yeah. But, like, he's still very nice, though, at the end of the day. He's, he's still very cool. He's a very way. nice, cool guy who offers a lot of financial assistance to the team. Anyway, Fred's in trouble as he's the target of an assassin. The assassin being a samurai woman named Twilight Suzuka, played here by Wendy Lee. And she is cool. She's mm-hmm. very cool. <laughs> And also, between this and Bebop, Wendy Lee has a knack for playing beautiful, badass ladies. With black hair. Yep, with black hair. <laughs> <laughs> and she has the same uh, signature weapon as uh, Taiga Isaka from Toradora. She uses a wooden sword. Right, right. But it's like supplanted with like the, 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 the bullshit Tao magic yeah. <laughs> in the series. <laughs> like, she can do some serious damage with it. Like, literally cut through anything. Cut stuff with magic. A magic-imbued wooden sword. This is like some Metal Gear Rising Revengeance shit right here. (laughs) Just getting a magic blade. It's quite cool. And, like, great way to get over her strength as, like, doesn't even need a proper blade to cut things. Like, she can even blow holes into a building just using, like, the air crusher. So, with Suzuka after Fred, he needs a bodyguard and Jean's the man for a job. All this in exchange for Fred to help out the crew of the Outlaw Star. Although I find it funny that she even, like, has, like, that she tries real hard to adhere to a gimmick that she only kills people during the twilight hours. Yeah. To the point where, like, she, when she runs out of time, she's like, oh, fuck this, I got a gimmick I gotta gotta adhere to. I'll kill you tomorrow, okay? (laughs) When are you available? (laughs) Between the hours of 3 and 5 p.m. But not every 6, that's Suzuka time. (laughs) And also, like, uh, during this uh, night duel, she even, uh, she even cuts, like, a truck in half with her wooden sword, which looks so awesome (laughs) and there's even a great shot where like she stands above jean with the full moon behind her like ah come on and she's got the style but in the end jean's able to beat her with in the goofiest way possible by undoing the sash on her kimono and then just kind of spinning her around until like her clothes are just kind of like loosely tied together Mm -hmm. like that's that's how she loses and he's able to make a deal with her you know she spares fred for now in exchange she has to kill Jean first, so, you know, get to Jean, then she'd kill Fred. Ah, there we go. Though, if she wants to get to him, she has to do so before the K-Pirates get to him first. One of the pirates attempts to uh, kill Melfina at this point, but then uh, the high-end talent of Suzuka comes in to save the day. And also, I like, uh, after when she's, like, fighting the K-Pirates here, she does the classic, uh, you know, samurai duel, where you do the dual slash, and then there's a pause, and then one of them collapses. Like, it's cliche, but it's always a classic. I like it. Yeah. Still, still cool to this day. And after this, she decides to stick around with the crew of the Outlaw Star, you know, finding them interesting. And it's good to have a nice, and it's good to have a fighter like her around. Yeah, it's good to have some muscle around. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jean is injured and on the ropes. All this at the hands of a pirate leading this attack. This guy's name is Yase, played here by Robert Martin Klein. Though, uh, he ends up fleeing, but not before leaving Jean with a parting gift. Poison. <laughs> eh, he's gonna die. Oh well. Series over. Oh, you know it's not. No, it's not. So will you live and die here, Gene Starwin? The decision is yours. Certainly hope he chose the former, otherwise it'd be a short series. It's not like he really has a choice, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I choose to die, that's it, the end. Yeah, no, I cho- yeah, I choose to have the poison on, bo- on my body. Oh, wait, it's not working. Guess it doesn't work like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> though Suzuka suspects that the enemy uh, poisoned him to force a negotiation, and she would be right. As Yase will give the antidote in exchange for the Outlaw Star. Fair trade, right? 
Though, uh, even in his uh, weakened poison state, Gene tells the pirate to take his offer and shove it up his you-know-what. Then Melfina gets an idea. It involves uh, Gene getting into her navigation pod with her, and uh, leads to a really trippy scene where they mentally connect in the space of the pod, as she's able to uh, purge the poison from him while also uh, comforting him, because she can still kind of she can kind of feel his thoughts, and as he's thinking about, you know, his past with his dad, and she's there to comfort him and tell him that, you know, he's not alone, She'll always, he'll always have her. Mm-hmm, building a connection between the two. It's, it's very nice, though. I can't ignore the fact that uh, they're both naked, and Gene looks like he has no penis. <laughs> I have no willy. It's it's just how cutscene. It's just how like cutscenes go like that. It does. Like you know, <laughs> I'm pretty sure no one at Sunrise wanted to animate the dick, so they just kind of gave him the Ken doll in anime. It doesn't matter in scenes like that. No, it's it like doesn't. they're <laughs> mentally connecting. You don't have to have your penis in mental worlds. Okay. <laughs> you think I give a shit about that in the ending of like Xenogears when they didn't have penises? I'm not gonna focus on that. Nah, probably not. I'm gonna focus on how the villain just like magically becomes a good guy at the end and then like becomes God. <laughs> <laughs> I like Xenogears, but, like, there's... Uh, that, that ending of that game. <laughs> Troubled production. By the way, this whole scene here, does this count as sex? I'm gonna put it in the maybe pile. Brain... Mind sex. Mind sex. The Possibly. Best, the best kind. <laughs> but this does the trick, and Gene is back in action. And Gene takes out the robots with the Outlaw Star's grappler arms while it's still kind of mounted to, like, the launch pad, but he's still using the arms to kind of throw them around and fight them off. And then Suzuka finishes off Yase in a very awesome way. You know, he tries to uh, worm out of the fight, but then fires a bunch of lasers at her, and then she just quickly blocks him, like a really cool animation bit. <laughs> and then one quick slash, and it's over. So now they get out of here, and time has come for Gene's space journey to truly begin. And all thanks to Melfina helping him out earlier, he's able to get past his uh, fear of space travel right now, and he's pretty much good for the rest of the series, just for that little connection. Yeah, but it still took some episodes to get to this point, though. Yeah, it took, like, at this point, this would be, like, eight episodes within the series, and we're now just finally getting into, like, the real beef of the series. I like that, though. I like that it took a time. its time with that. I like it, you know? You know, like, I'm following Delicious Party Predicure, and people are saying, like, eh, it's taking too long, and I'm just like, no, 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 it's great. Space out, bringing everyone together. I like when a series does that. Well, yeah, because, well, well Precure's different, because you're going to have, like, what, 52 episodes Yeah, like, total. 50 episodes. It's like, come on, they can take their time. We don't need the first three episodes to get the team together. We can take our time. Yeah, no. <laughs> and now, let's see what the Outlaw Star can really do, as we get a battle against three other Grappler pirate ships. This is where we get, like, the real spaceship hand-to-hand -hand combat right here. It's really fun to watch. Even though a lot of the grappling kind of just comes down to, like, them holding hands with each other. Yeah, they're doing, like, uh, Greco-Roman knuckle locks right here, doing <laughs> tests of strength. <laughs> Though also, like, some robots fight with, like, like you mentioned before, the guns, and they also have, like, swords, too. No, but they do actually, like, move around and, like, kind of maneuver, and, like, do different maneuvers to try and get, like, an extra edge on the opponent. Like, there is actually some, like, they, they, they fool you, the animators fool you into thinking there's more skill to this. Yeah. Which, I mean, you want to do for any kind of, like... <laughs> fight scenes and, like, animation. And I do like the gimmick of, like, how before each grappler fight, they gotta launch, like, a ton of cameras all around the area so that uh, the pilot can see, like, what's going on around all of them. Mm-hmm. That's a nice touch. While, like, they have, like, like, we see Gene had, like, this little eyepiece, which, like, he can see, like, what the ship she sees all around him. Right, right. And, like, this animation, it's nearly 25 years old, and it still looks amazing. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, well, a lot of the animation in the series really holds up to this day. And also, I like the, uh, the little charming thing that you get with, like, a lot of cell and film animation, where, like, especially if you watch it, like, in HD, you can see, like, little, like, specks of dust and dirt, like, on each frame. Yeah, um, I like that. I love that so much. Mm. 
Or like uh, another trick I really like, you know how uh, to show that a ship is like flying through the air and it has like the uh, the engines firing, there has like that flashing light, or like they're looking at computer screens and the screen's like very bright. I love the way they do that where like in real life they cut out part of the frame and then the light that flashes through is the light of like the uh, the projector underneath the uh, the cells. Ah, oh, I love cool shit like that. It's it's cool practical. I feel shit. like modern productions would call that stuff like workarounds or like cheats or something, but like I love imperfections like that. I love that. Or like they're they're not even imperfections. They're just like stylistic choices, but they're ones that like work really well and are different and like you remember them all the more. Yeah, and it, and it also just gets over like how how hard they really worked on, like, animating the series. Yes, absolutely. So, with the pirates defeated, we say goodbye to Sentinel-3 and set coordinates for a place called Haifong. And now we have everything pretty much set up. You know, we got our, most of our crew, we have a ship that's fully operational, and we got some goals here, you know, in the form of these mysterious McDougal brothers and, these, and this galactic ley line. Like, it's all beautiful setup right here. Yeah, and the ley line is just going to be our one piece for this series. Pretty much. It's what it's like the, the big magic treasure at the end of the rainbow that everyone's trying to get to. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it's not really, they don't really define for the most part what it actually is until the very end. Kind of like the one piece. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit Probably. of a mystery like that. Yeah, yeah. But before we reach Haifong, we kind of get like a bit of a standalone episode, you know, where Gene and Jim take some jobs to get some money to pay for maintenance as uh, we can't forget these guys are freelancers. Mm -hmm. But uh, episodes like these are kind of ones that are kind of the most comparable to Bebop, because, uh, you know, like with Bebop, there is kind of an overarching plot, you know, with Spike and the Syndicate. But really the thing that everyone remembers most fit is like these standalone one-off adventures. And like uh, Outlaw Star does have its fair share of those episodes. They're, they're both feature characters that need to make money at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> and they got to take up some jobs. And in the end also kind of get screwed too. Yeah. <laughs> But it's also, like, episodes that kind of help get over our characters, you know, building the relationships between the both of them and kind of getting over that chemistry. Mm-hmm. It helps when you have characters that are freelancers like that. Yeah, so they can it, do anything. Professions like those, especially, like, you know, like, bounty hunters, like, mercenaries, like, it lends itself well to seriality. And here, uh, Gene and Jim go on their mission to kill a man named Zomba, and they do. Kind of. As they just killed a cyborg that just looks like him. But, but then it turns out that Suzuka actually killed the real Zomba and got, like, the bigger reward at the end. <laughs> like, the reveal was pretty funny, where, like, uh, they asked her, like, what she was doing, and she was all like, oh, I was doing a job, made a trifle amount. And then people come running out saying, like, hey, that's the woman that killed Zomba! <laughs> Just stealing thunder. Yeah, and, they're all, and Gene and Jim are like, wait, ah, uh, come on. Ah. Uh, <laughs> well, they got the money at the end of the day. They got, they got at least got two rewards. So the crew makes it to Haifong in just in time too, as uh, this time of year is the annual Haifong Space Race. Uh, first of many races we're going to see this summer, actually. <laughs> yep, races in space. Yep. And uh, Gene's gung-ho about entering this race, as uh, in the lead-up he saw that uh, the McDougals were a part of it. And uh, all he needs to do is fill out the necessary paperwork, have the Outlaw Star checked out, and of course deposit 150,000 Wong. Come again? <laughs> 150,000. Plus insurance. Yeah, that's a pretty steep, well, like... I don't know what the exchange rate really is on Wongs. Like, how does it compare to, like, ooh, like Wulongs? I, the way I thought of it is, like, maybe it's kind of like dollars. You know, one, it's like one-to-one. -one. Is, like, is, like is it like the Chinese yuans? Or... I never understand what, like, the exchange rate things are, are in these, with, yeah. like, these series. Yeah. I don't know if it can be, like, the same as, like, you know, comparing American dollars to yen. Because, like, if you look at these amounts, it can 
they seem bigger than they actually are, so it can't be like that. I don't know. It, it could maybe be Yen, too. Could be. So, but uh, in learning about this, we learned that the uh, space race is, is, seems to be exclusive to rich bastards. And rich bastards and people with sponsors, just like NASCAR. <laughs> so it's uh, time to see our old uh, homophobic friend here as uh, Fred agrees to bankroll the crew. And later on, Gene and Jim attend a rich bastard party for all the racers. And during this, uh, Gene starts to feel uh, mighty thirsty. L luckily, uh, certain someone's here to uh, quench anybody's extreme thirst. As welcome back, Asia. Hey. hey. As we, we find out that she's been hitchhiking her way across space just to get here, and then ends up getting like a catering job at the space race. It's a lot of it's a, it's a lot of like her humor in many in many parts of the series, especially early on, that she's like this military commander that is just disgraced down to the lowest level. Yeah, <laughs> has to take up like regular old jobs. And like she wants to get her revenge on Jean right now, but uh, she's on the clock, so she's got to work. But uh, you know, once five o'clock hits, watch yourself, Jean Starwind. <laughs> And so, the day of the race is here, and even Aisha joins in as uh, she ropes in some uh, Katarl Katarl to enter the race for her. But more importantly, the McDougal Bros are here with their ship called the Eldorado. And when during this race, we actually get to see, you know, Gene really start to get into, like, piloting. You know, he does some, like, risky moves to get them to, like, the first checkpoint, avoiding, like, a giant space wave. And also, like, uh, we even cut back to uh, Suzuka watching the race as uh, she's just casually placing bets on the race and, like, gambling, too, and just <laughs> relaxing, too. I'm gonna give some props that this is also a race that, like, lasts, like, multiple episodes, too. Yeah, it does, as they get over that this race, like, takes days and days to complete. Right, right. As many, like, real-life races actually do. Yeah. Take. Back with Aisha, as she plans to ambush the outlaw star. What's her plan? Pretend to be stranded in the middle of space, call for help, have Jean pick her up, bring her aboard the ship, and surprise, motherfucker, I'm on your ship! <laughs> Just stupid hitchhiker. Just it's... a stupid hitchhiker plan. Yeah. <laughs> but like... Gonna just put her thumb out and be like, hey, can I hitch a ride? Or uh, show some leg or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, Gene, he doesn't see her as much of a threat. Like, he sees her more of as an, an annoyance. I mean, even the viewers are by this point. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, once she's on the ship, she does have some uh, funny comments about, like, the Outlaw Star. You know, she, like, gets a look at uh, Melfina and her pod and says, uh, this ship's way behind any Katara Katara ship. It won't move unless you're naked. That's very kinky, wouldn't you say? Ah, powered by nudity, I yeah. see. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, nudist beach from Kill a Kill only wishes they could, like, be this powerful. <laughs> Eventually, Aisha finds out that Jean doesn't know anything about the Galactic Ley Line, but uh, the McDougal brothers might know a little something. So she decides to stick around with the crew since uh, they're all going after the same guys. And, like, eventually Jean just kind of just forgets about her revenge on Jean and just kind of makes herself at home. Kind of just wants the situation to get, like, more confrontational, if anything. Always pushing things into a fight. Yeah, and also, like, motivating the crew to, like, go after these big fights, you know, saying, like, you know, Katara Katara warriors are can take this no problem. Like, what are you? <laughs> and we're on the home stretch of the race, and Gene gets an idea. He's gonna fly into, like, an ether stream as a last-ditch effort to get ahead, and he uses the stream to, like, kind of slingshot his way into third place. I mean, I guess that's, I guess that's how stuff in space works. That kind of does. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's a slingshot maneuver from Talladega Nights, but with, like, space waves. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they try to aim for the top three, they miss it, and end up finishing in fourth. But they did get first in the uh, privateer class, so they're able to get some money out of everything, you know, break even with their deal with Fred. Right. And then we see Jim and Asia celebrating by wearing these custom race outfits that Fred made for the crew to advertise his uh, business. <laughs> the McDougals, they actually dropped out of the race, you know, they ditched, like, MJF at a meet and greet. And instead, he challenges Gene to a one-on-one -on -one grapplership fight. And the battleground? 
an asteroid field. Take the grappler fights that we've seen earlier in the series, crank the tension up to 11, and put throw, a shitload of rocks around them. Just a him. bunch of rocks everywhere to just hide behind or throw or everything. <laughs> you know, sneaky fucker picking this place for a duel. And he knows how to use the asteroids to his advantage as the Eldorado seems to be more maneuverable than the Outlaw Star. And Harry here, he keeps taking, like, pot shots at the Outlaw Star. And I do like how they barely show the Eldorado during, like, the first half of the fight. You know, just getting over that, he can come at you from any which way possible. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice edge to give them. And also kind of gets over how very disorienting this is. Like, he's there, he's there, he's there, he's there. Like, where is he coming from? Mm-hmm. Quite nice. So Gene's got to go all out to handle this guy. How's he going to do that? He's going to throw Aisha off the strip. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but odds aren't great, but it's better than staying on the defense waiting for Harry to run out of missiles. But uh, while outside, Aisha is able to find Harry and then signals for the outlaw star. And then now the real grappler fight can begin. Shoots a flare and says, like, he's right here. Then the outlaw star pierces into the Eldorado and Gene boards the ship. And he's going to get a little up close and personal with Harry here. But uh, as Gene confronts Harry, Harry hacks into Gilliam and then gets a good look at Melfina, and he's very, very creepy. First of many, many creepy moments. It's intentional, though. Very intentional. Yeah, he's he's a very disturbed character. He is. Like he's got some, he's got stuff going on with him. But before Gene can get any more info out of Harry, he flees and escapes with his brother Ron. As it turns out, uh, he wasn't actually maneuvering all around the asteroids. They had another El Dorado ship to kind of make it look like he was coming in from everywhere. And we find out that Ron is actually the real brains of the operation between the two brothers. Because in actuality, Harry, not only being a creep, he's a little pissant too. Yeah, he's he's way too impulsive. You know, there's a bit where Gene shoots him in the arm, and then like later he's with Harry going all like, Ugh, he shot me in, his, in my arm, brother. Like a fucking baby. Like, <laughs> he's a mean, mean man. Wants, wants his older brother to beat him up. <laughs> yeah. My, my older brother can beat you up, Gene Starwin. Just you wait. <laughs> So the bros peace out, and the crew heads back to Hayfong to regroup. And we're going to be here a while, so let's get some gigs in. Unfortunately for them, all the jobs they can get at this moment are just a bunch of, like, chump change jobs. Yeah, because, like, what actual, like, story stuff even takes place here that, like, progresses the story, like, beyond much? Pretty much they're just trying to, like, find work wherever they can, and this is actually an opportunity to kind of introduce a bit of the, uh, the species of this world, the Gleepglops that we find throughout this series. <laughs> you know, like, lizard aliens, insect aliens, plant aliens. You know, the Star Wars influence really showing off here. Well, I, well, it's also good for, well, well, again, by this point, though, we have the full crew, though. Yes. So you want to, like, solidify it a bit with some adventures. And kind of show, like, how each of them operates, you know, like, how Aisha is, like, kind of taking a job where she has to, like, take out a monster within the city. Or, like, uh, Jim and Melfina have to take a job where they have to, like, locate and find, like, some missing cargo. And Gene is just like, he doesn't want to do any of it, so instead he just, he asks out, like, a woman on a date, like, this woman who helped him get signed up for the race. Yep, establishing everyone's niches inside this uh, found family we got going on. It also shows that uh, Suzuka, like, tends to go off on her own to do her own jobs. Yeah, but, like, the the, lo the loner of the group. And also, like, uh, one alien in particular we see right here is this mind-controlling cactus. <laughs> which actually reminded me of a of an episode of uh, Star Twinkle Pretty Care where they're like, there's an episode where they actually do meet like a cactus alien, but it's a nice episode all about the importance of communication and being sensitive towards other people's feelings. Here though, it's a uh, cactus mind controlling people to sell average ice cream. <laughs> and then Aisha is trying to kill this cockroach alien that is also working with the cactus alien too. Oh no, a cockroach, the, 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 the mortal foe of the one that wants to kill everything. <laughs> 
And then the cactus controls Jim and uses him as, like, a mouthpiece to, like, spout out their manifesto. Oh my god. And then all this ends with Melfina having none of the cactus's shit and then slaps him. And then starts stomping a mud hole in him until it's like he's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll splice you it in because it's actually kind of funny. That cactus is doing this. Ah! What? What do you think you're doing? I have no idea. <laughs> so you're beginning to realize my true nature. Not bad for a lower creature. I guess I have to compliment you. What is the deal? Why are you talking so weird? I'm telling you guys, it's not me. My mouth is moving by itself. Huh? All right. What in the hell are you? Ha! You may call me Great One. I am a higher life form capable of ruling the entire universe. No matter what you do, you have absolutely no means of escaping my control. I suggest you surrender. You cactus bastard. You were behind all of this. So what exactly is it that you plan to do? Why are you selling ice cream, ruler of the universe? That's simple. For observation and experimentation to see precisely how effective my control is over you. And now my observation and experimentation are complete. Oh, Jane! Hey, wait, Jim! Oh no, the treacherous animal is getting away! My plan will proceed to stage two! No way! Help, Jane! I'm trying, damn it! Melvina! Halt, I say! You lower animal! Halt, I said! Halt! Right where you are! Halt! Halt! Why, damn you? Why doesn't my power work on you? Stop doing horrible things to him! Ah! <laughs> what have you done? Hurry, pick me up! Uh, 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 what should I do now? Squash that thing. Oh, you really want me to squash it? No, don't do it! If you squash it, we're gonna lose tons and tons of money! Oh. Do it, Melfina. Ignore what he's saying. The cactus still has control over him. Oh, yeah, right. Um, sorry, Jim, I have to. Come on, I'm begging you, don't do it! Stop it, damn it! Stop! I command you, stop! You. Uh. I told you, you must obey me! I'm an order of a higher species! What are you doing? Please, stop! Stop it! Stop, I tell you! How dare you! How dare you! You lower animal! Stop! Stop it! I shouldn't have to take! I insist you stop! Please, stop! Stop it! Now, I beg of you! It's all mashed up. It sure is. Now, you're not going to make me eat any more of that crappy ice cream, are you? Why would you eat crappy ice cream? But all this kind of does make for, like, a fun little little breather episode after the space race and the battle with the McDougals. Yeah. <laughs> we're at the halfway point of the show, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with the second half of Outlaw Star, only the summer tsunami on Anime Baby.
can't run off. I'm not finished playing with you yet. Outlaw Star will return in a moment. Welcome to the future. Transferring to autopilot mode. A place where good guys finish last. Oh, I'll make them wish they'd never been born. A quick draw. Is the best defense. A person, but I'm here to kill you. And your wits are all you can count on. A future where one treasure is coveted above all else. Tell me the coordinates of the galactic ley line. Legend speaks of the galactic ley line, offering the ultimate power of the universe to those who seek its glory. The doors have opened. Utilizing the latest technology, a living starship has been built with the power to find the galactic ley line. Fallen into the hands of an outlaw. An outlaw named Gene Starwin. Well, let's blow some hot kisses to my devoted fans. His luck is about to change. Together with his crew of bounty hunters, he will take to the stars. Accelerate and fly down their throat. An outlaw star. Monday, January 15th at 6.30. Time to roll the dice. All playing to Nami. Acceleration has dropped to approximately 70%. And now, back to Outlaw Star. And we're back with more Outlaw Star goodness. It's still have the same OP, but it's slightly updated, as uh, in this version we see there's a shot of Melfina, Aisha, and Suzuka, and they're kind of cuddling more so than they did in the first one. Because I guess they're getting closer now, I think. Yep. Unless it just makes for a nice image. It does. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have a new ending, uh, Suki no Ie, still by uh, Arai Akino. Still very nice. It's still very nice. Still very good on the ears. Yep. Calming. Yep. And I do like the images of the ladies. Yeah. Very nice. So, we're leaving together. But still, it's farewell. Maybe we'll come back to Earth. Who can tell? I guess there's no one to blame. We're leaving ground. Leaving ground. Will things ever be the same again? It's the final countdown! Oh uh, yeah, might as well get that out of the way. Yeah, there is an episode named The Final Countdown, and apparently even the title card uses the same font as the Final Countdown album. <laughs> of course they couldn't play the actual song because uh, Europe charges an arm and a leg to license it. You'll just have to, like, kind of play it over the episode as you're watching it. You know, like, that whole cost thing, probably, like, it's, like, the same reason why Brian Danielson couldn't use the song in AEW despite it being his theme in ROH. They just charged so much money. I mean, at this song, I mean, at this point, that song is proliferated so much everywhere, it might as well be public domain by now. It should be. <laughs> but now, you're up. Hey, up. Anyway, this time around, our fearless crew has to deal with a bomber named Crackerjack, played here by Kirk Thornton, and, uh, allegedly, he's a part of this, uh, Haifong Independence Group. As he hacked into the Outlaw Star, shutting down everything except for the Grappler Arms. So with Gene, Jim, and Melfina trapped on the Outlaw Star, that means it's time for the team of Aisha and Suzuka. Give them a time to shine. We don't see much of it, but I do like these two teaming up, being the two, like, uh, fighters of the team right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it's, it's, it's a good opportunity to really pair these off, since there's not really too many other opportunities later in the series for that. Yeah, but we do get some moments where, like, anytime the crew needs to fight, it's always, like, these two are always on the front line. I mean, they can actually get in close, though. They can. Like, they're more hand-to-hand. -hand Gene's, like, the kind of, like, shoot-you-in-the-head kind of guy. Yeah, and he only has, like, so many shots before, like, he has to run away. 
And then Jim is just a kid. He's a little kid. <laughs> little wiener kid. Yeah. As for our uh, trap trio up in space, they got to do some bomb diffusion with the grappler arms, too. <laughs> as there's a bomb on the satellite that uh, Cracker Jack has rigged to uh, explode if they don't uh, give in to their demands. How many fingers do these things have again? Yeah, like three fingers, and they're more like... How can you fucking diffuse a bomb with just three fingers? They kind of look like, uh... They kind of look like Gamma's non-gun hand from Sonic Adventure. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll shill out for like we'll shill out all this money for this arms race, but we'll only give him three fingers. You know, those extra two fingers they cost extra, <laughs> or we haven't found the technology to really get the the five finger hand right. Oh, great! Space Force like went and like cut the budget again. Guess we're gonna have only like three fingered like <laughs> spaceships now. <laughs> Hey, hey, be glad they gave you that extra finger, because that way you can still flip people off. Ah. Just a middle finger. <laughs> All right, Gene, when it comes to defusing a bomb, remember these words. Red were dead, blue were through, yellow were mellow. <laughs> oh, wait, there's only red and blue. Uh, figure it out. <laughs> if only they can do, like, the uh, the tiger bunny thing, where they can just throw the bomb into the air, and it just explodes away from everyone. Or you just have, like, Goro Majima's luck from, like, the Yakuza games, and just, like, I don't know, fucking cut whatever. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're dead either way. Yeah. Let's just try anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how all this rainbow-ass shit works. I don't, why do people design bombs like this? It's just kind of <laughs> counterintuitive. <laughs> hey, how about this? You make all the wires black. Yeah, f- let them figure that, that shit out. Cut the black wire? They're all black wires! <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, maybe just uh, just don't... Or maybe just find a way to not use wires. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't have a thing where people can disable it. You know, why would why would someone who makes a bomb choose to have that? Maybe weld it shut, maybe. Yeah. Like, there's, there's some ways you can get around this. Yeah. You know, you gotta think more. And after some investigating, Aisha and Suzuka find out Cracker Jack's true identity. Turns out he and his crew are just a bunch of thieves pretending to be this terrorist group here. So they're kind of using the uh, the fear of this bomb going off as like a cover to go rob some jewels. Hey, that's kind of clever, though. That is pretty clever. And so the two proceed to beat the shit out of Cracker Jack and his crew, and it's all beautifully animated. <laughs> this beautiful, beautiful hand-to-hand combat. <laughs> and then Gene gets in on the fun, too, after uh, disarming the bomb as he crashes the outlaw star in front of like the jewelry store where Cracker Jack was at, jumps out, and then just beats the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, back to some plot stuff as we are introduced to the Anten 7. They're a group of an elite assassins that who take their name from a variety of Japanese beetles. And each member has their own particular area of expertise. They're the gung-ho guns from Trigun. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what they are. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like all, like all of them are assassins with different, different specializations and gimmicks and shit. <laughs> I mean, this group is fine, but like, I like groups like the Gung Ho Guns a bit more. Mm-hmm. They, they just, they just have a bit more to do. Yeah. Ooh, let's introduce them. Roll call. State your name and abilities. Shimi, played here by Steve Bullen, a warrior whose skill is such that there is no one in the pirate guild who has never heard of him. Lady Iraga, played here by Barbara Goodson, a werewolf with miraculous life force. Hanmyo, played here by Rebecca Forstat, a prodigy of space combat with the use of cats. Hamushi, played here by Dorothy Fawn. A beauty who captivates men purely by her sex appeal. Tobigera, played here by Michael Lindsay, a master of disguise and the tools of killing. Jukai, played here by Doug Stone, his abilities are shrouded in mystery. Hitoriga, played here by Barry Stigler, a man advanced in martial arts, much like the leader of the Anten Seven. And speaking of their leader, that is Han Zanko, played here by Tom Weiner. And we learn not to fuck with these guys, as yeah. they will fuck you up back. Mm-hmm. 
and they really want to fuck up Gene Starwin. They want his ass dead. And Shimi is the first to challenge Gene, and he demands satisfaction and challenges him to a duel. Tomorrow, high noon, Starwin! <laughs> Pistols at dawn. No, but this actually makes for, like, one of my favorite episodes in the whole series, though. Like, it's classic Western shit. I love it. Also, like, that, uh, you know, after he gets challenged through this duel, Gene doesn't seem very phased by any of this. You know, rather than prepare, he's just playing, like, a dating sim on his Game Boy. <laughs> you know, the, the secret Game Boy version of Tokimeki Memorial. Yeah. <laughs> but he also gets a drink at a bar with a nice guy named Leilong. You know, real upstanding gent. And he gets the Gene, you know, makes him really think seriously about this duel, you know. Maybe appreciate life a bit more. And the conversation does get under his skin, you know. Gene starts to show a bit more uh, vulnerability here, you know, he's kind of, like, really thinking hard about this fight here. Yeah, yeah, he's actually starting to think, like, what should I live for, you know? Yeah, and just, what is my purpose here? What do I need to do? And the following day, Gene duels with Shimi. Or does he? Nah, he duels one of his lackeys, as the real Shimi is Leilong from the bar. Ah, pull a swerve there. Ah. It actually turns out to be a pretty sick and, like, very difficult fight. Yeah, what do you think of this fight here? I mean, it's it's just plain awesome. Like, yeah. like it's one of the best fights in the whole series. Especially since it ends up involving all of the crew as well. Yes, this I guy love is that. So good. This guy is so good that they have to involve the entire crew to take him out. Poignant, given that uh, Gene throughout this whole episode has believed that this is his fight alone. He will always be alone in this universe, like, fighting his own fights, but it really solidifies the crew as, like, an actual crew, though, and it, and it really helps to sell that point. Uh, Leilong has Gene on the ropes, and then just, like, each member just kind of, like, walks in saying that they will fight for Gene, and I, I really love that. And yeah, but even, and they even kind of get taken out pretty quickly, but, like, Gene even shows, like, concern for them, though. Mm-hmm. And, like, even though they get curb stomped, like, the thought that counts, like, the fact that they're willing to help him and stand by him to the bitter end. And it all comes down to just one shot between Jin and Shimi. Yep, as they just kind of have, like, the classic Western duel, you know, stand in front of each other, draw, bang. And in the end, it's Jin's luck that saves him as uh, Leilong's gun jams on him, so Jin's able to shoot and kill him. Could have legitimately died in all this and only got out sheerly because of luck. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, like, that is pure classic Western right there. Ugh, yeah. Like, that's almost like some Clint Eastwood shit. Mm-hmm. Leilong, he also has some luck, too, as he doesn't die. Like, they bury him in, like, a shallow grave, and he digs himself out later. Like, he somehow <laughs> managed to uh, survive that shot. No, it, was, it was cool to see some, like, nice honor from this assassin, though. Yeah, because, like, after the fight, he goes, like, well, I'm out of here. <laughs> he, like, leaves the group. Presumably to go, like, change his name and then, like, become a, I don't know, fucking weapon seller or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he doesn't go back to the Seven. He's just on his own. <laughs> Shame we don't see him again, but, like, still, it's nice. Yeah, it all, it all makes for uh, an incredibly cool episode that helps to solidify the relationship of the crew. I really like it. I like that. And after that, let's talk more about the Galactic Ley Line and its connection to uh, the Outlaw Star and Melfina. As uh, Gene discusses this with a mysterious man with a certain scar on his mouth. Gene, allow me to introduce you to Ronald McDougal. Gene, Ron, Ron, Gene. <laughs> but uh, this is the first time these two actually get a face-to-face -face meeting with each other, you know, kind of being... Before being on the opposite ends of, like, some comm signals, but now they're here, in the same room, talking to each other. But really helps to solidify them as, like, an actual real threat, though. Oh, yeah, they really get over, like, how Ron, like, more so than Harry, like, he... He is very much in control of, like, a lot of the things they do. He's the one that's gotta be the... Th that's gotta do all the thinking to keep his younger brother, like, on a tight leash. 
and he's the one who can also like match Gene with wits. Like he's kind of on the same mental level as Gene, maybe even better. Yes, yes. He he establishes himself quite well as a threat. Especially here, like this confidence of like calling in a fake gig, bringing Gene to like a restaurant and then just having a chat like when he knows full well Gene could shoot him right here, then and there. But he knows he's not going to do it. Mm-hmm. They're going to talk. They're just going to sit and have a nice talk. Yes, very nice. Your table, sir. Enjoy your meal. I knew that you'd change your mind. Please, have a seat. Take your time, gentlemen. Well? I want to propose a deal to you. A deal? I thought I came here to discuss a job that had to do with the galactic ley line. I want to know if you would agree to sell me your ship and the girl that access its control computer. Sorry, pal. Neither one of them's for sale. Wait a minute. How do you know about Melfina? I heard about her from my little brother. Your little brother? Huh? Are you telling me that you're the older McDougal brother? That's right. I knew you'd catch on quick. You bastard! The galactic ley line. Now that I've got your attention, do you have any idea what it is? I don't know, but I would imagine your killing Hilda had something to do with it. It was nothing personal. I was just carrying out a contract. I just happened to be doing some checking around afterwards and discovered a few stray facts I think you might find especially interesting. Really? What do you mean by facts? Start talking! To make the journey to a place called the Galactic Ley Line, the K-Pirates needed a specially equipped ship and navigation system. The only ship that can make such a trip is yours, the XGP. And the only navigation system precise enough is the Bio-Android Girl. I know for a fact Hilda kept that ship a secret. That ship wasn't designed and constructed by the pirates alone. It was completed in secrecy with considerable assistance from a Space Forces group. Incidentally, the ship and the android were both stolen by Hilda. So, you helped out the pirates and killed Hilda, is that it? No, not at all. The only way I helped out the pirates was by finding Hilda. The actual request to destroy the XGP came from the Space Forces, who were afraid that their dealings with the pirates would come out. At the time, they didn't explain what kind of ship the XGP was, or its capabilities. But that doesn't change the fact that you're the one who killed Hilda. I'll get to that point. But before I do, I want the XGP and the bio-android girl, Melfina. I'll never give them to a blood-sucking parasite like you. Have it your way, but just remember that if you keep them, they won't be used for their original purpose. Then there's just one other thing I need to ask you. Yeah, what is it? Are you the guys who destroyed a cargo ship near Sentinel-3 six years ago? I gotta know. Six years ago near Sentinel? (laughs) I don't remember anything like that. Yes, you do, you lying bastard! I saw your ship with my own two eyes! In that case, I suppose it's possible I've forgotten. I've been rather busy lately in my line of work. I can't recall every little job I've done. You call that a little job? Let me help you remember. How about starting from the beginning and telling me everything that you know? I thought I told you this afternoon to come unarmed. I didn't have any guarantee that you'd be unarmed, did I? No, I guess you didn't. I think you've insulted my friends. I hate to disappoint you, but you're not the only one who brought along some friends. And the fight is on between the crew and Ron, as Ron is equipped with these uh, Space Force Panther robots. What do you think of these? I mean, uh, I mean, do, do these things even come up later on? Oh, uh, we see them a few times over the course of like this back half of the season. It's like, it's, I, don't, I, like I don't know, they just look a little lame to me. <laughs> they, they look like 
they have like the bodies of like a panther, but like they have like these little robot heads. It's so <laughs> weird. <laughs> oh, it's so, it's so good to know in the future that uh, the the MIT robot department is still making weapons for assholes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Harry meets up with Melfina and creeps on her super hard. Like, fuck's sake, this guy. I mean, yeah, but like, what, what do you expect? He's he's a skeezy character. He is. <laughs> did you expect any better from him? Nah, nah. <laughs> to be honest, I expect worse. Yes. Like, be more worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he does. Like, he's so super creepy, breaking in, even slapping Melfina. Like, holy shit, this guy, he means business. But also, in a very abusive way, still wants to have a strong relationship with her and have her all to his own... Oh, like one hundred percent, like digging out of the abuser playbook right here. Yeah, it's 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 a it's it's effectively scary. But uh, thankfully, Melfina is able to stop him and get away from him, and also even destroy his uh, robot arm in the process—the arm that uh, Gene shot earlier. Mm-hmm. But then, like, he just rips it out and then just like leaves it in front of the door to the outlaw star <laughs> too. He's a fucking freak, man. And this is the last time we'll see him get these mechanical upgrades because that becomes like his thing throughout the series where he gets every time we see him he gets more and more upgrades ah but he breaks down further mentally though yeah, as like, he goes along you know melfina being more human than human harry more machine than man yes exactly need a little levity after uh, the little creepazoid attack there and i know just the trick let's uh why don't we say we combine two things that i personally love yeah, and that's asia clan clan and pro wrestling. Oh yeah, the the big fight episode. Yes, the first time I saw this, I'm just all like, "This is an episode made for me and me alone." Strong man and strong woman contests. As uh, in exchange for a big loan from Fred here, the Outlaw Star Crew enters a big Universal Strongman tournament to stop Fred's fiance, uh, Reiko Ando, played here by Mary Elizabeth McGlynn, doing double duty. They gotta stop her from winning and becoming the strongest woman in the universe in order to prevent a marriage between the two. As he made a deal with her where, like, if she can win this tournament five times in a row, then I'll have to marry her. And this will be number five if she wins. Fucking, like, find someone else, like... <laughs> also, like... Or just, like, not get married. Yeah. I think it might have been, like, an arranged thing right here, or he can't say no to her. It has, like, hints of that, like, you know, that whole, like, culture of, like, the confirmed bachelor back in the days. Ah. Like, uh. <laughs> also, I bet when this first aired in 98, there was a bunch of grown men cackling at the idea of a gay man being forced to marry a woman. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, probably, it was probably funny to, the, funny to them back then. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know what else is funny? A woman with muscles. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's also, like, a weird joke they put in there. Even though, like, they already, even though, like, Aisha has muscles, but it's like, I guess she... They're not defined, I guess? I guess, no, it's clear that they just discriminate, because, like, she has a more womanly body, but this lady has, like, actual muscle on her. Yeah, she's built like a bodybuilder. Yeah, exactly. Like, eh, yeah, it's got hints of that kind of culture at that time. Just the, ah, women should have hourglass figures, not broad shoulders. Eh, yeah. It's like, come on, man. But there is, but, like, this, but this episode, though, is saved by some good humor and uh, some fun action. Very much so. Yeah, anyway, Aisha tries to enter this tournament as the team's representative, but uh, she has to enter in disguise because Katarl Katarl are banned from entering the tournament because of an incident where Katarl Katarl went beast mode and pulled a Mike Tyson biting their opponent's ear off and then going on a rampage, leaving a bunch of people wounded and killed. <laughs> <laughs> like, we don't see any of that, but just, like, them describing what happens and seeing their reactions, they're all like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> But uh, we do see her disguise as she's pretending to be another fighter named Firecat. 
and it straight up looks like on Takamaki's panther suit from Persona 5. It does really look like that, except with, like, the plunging neckline. Yeah, more of a more of a boob window than her outfit. Mm-hmm. But still, taking something that I already love and making me love it even more. <laughs> <laughs> and then Jean enters the tournament, too, as they pull a cloud from Final Fantasy VII make him dress up as a woman. Uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, too bad he couldn't do, like, a sexy dance to get the outfit, like, in the remake. <laughs> Though, with this, with this, like, disguise here, he kind of looks a bit like, uh, Bisky from Hunter Hunter. Yeah, it does In, like, her, uh, true form. Yeah, it does kind of. The same pigtails and everything. Cheap jokes, but still, like, all of this is, like, really fun, too. Yeah, it still overall makes for, like, a fun episode. And you get a member of the N107 in, as well, to knock out of the park. Yes. So, first up, Gene has to wrestle Reiko, and it goes about as well as you'd expect. Like, he's messing around, like, dodging all of her attacks, and then he just gets his ass kicked. Like, one suplex, and then he just goes down and wakes up in a hospital bed later. Ah. <laughs> I love that. And then it's up to Aisha, and she's just having so much fun pummeling all these fighters that are so much weaker than her. I mean, yeah, she's just in her element here. You know, just delivering, like, Shoryukens and launching people outside of the ring. As uh, she's more than prepared to face off against Reiko. And about that, Reiko ended up losing as Lady Iraga from the Anten 7 is in the tournament. And so, it's your main event, set for one fall, or TV time remaining, as it's Firecat, aka Aisha, against Lady Iraga. You know, they got a bit of an early back and forth until Iraga takes control. She looks to finish things off, but then Aisha regains control. And, you know, you gotta work the crowd, build suspense, before making the big fiery comeback. <laughs> Head scissors! Brain basta! Chris Jericho move number 721, arm bar! Iraga powers through, and then she reveals that she's also a Katarl Katarl. And the match is off, and immediately she goes beast and goes after Jean. And then Aisha goes beast, and it's all kinds of pandemonium as these two... You got these two werecats fighting each other as this building is coming down and on fire. <laughs> and then, in the end, Aisha beats Iraga, and she's standing atop of a burning building, and then, like, howls at the moon, like... Ah, oh, cool! It's so cool! <laughs> like, first time I saw this, I'm just all like, yes... This is the best. Uh, this is awesome. <laughs> Wrestling match of the year. Match of the year. Six and a quarter star. <laughs> and with the tournament over and the money from Fred received, the crew leaves Haifong and sets their sights on the Galactic Ley Line. Like a good way to end the whole little uh, Haifong venture here. Mm-hmm. It was, it was quite nice. Uh, but first, right here, crew's got to deal with uh, being arrested as we're dealing with the Space Force now. Fuck the Space Force. <laughs> And also defund the Space Force, because we find out that apparently their high cost of operations are really fucking over a bunch of low-income planets. Ah, yeah, there's the rub. You know, uh, made in 1998, but still relevant in 2022. Yeah. And we meet the leader of the Space Force unit, who also happens to be a lizard man here. Introducing Duels Delix Rex, played here by Richard Epcar. And his comrade, Valeria Vertone, played here by Deborah Jean Rogers. And the name of this unit is Angel Lynx. And this episode is actually a tie-in to a spin-off light novel series, which eventually got its own anime after Outlaw Star ended. Guess which one is the more notable series? Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, in doing research, I completely forgot about this. I knew jack shit about it. <laughs> this uh, series, Angel Links, it had four light novels released from April 98 all the way to August 99. And uh, this episode actually came out in May 98, so the light novel came out first... Then the episode aired, like, probably around the same time to, like, help tie in and promote each other. Yeah, I it looked like a lot, so I didn't want to, like, get too much into it or anything. If anyone else knows anything about the series or, like, how it actually 
like, was? Like, it's, I don't know if this was actually a good series. Probably not, since you don't hear anyone talk about it, especially when it comes to, like, Outlaw Star. Well, you can't say that about just anything, though. Like, just because you don't hear about something doesn't mean it's not good. Yeah, I mean, it could be good, but That's not... an appeal to popularity. Yeah, but, like, uh, other but than... please, someone tell me. Like, please, I would like to know. Please tell us more about Angel Links, because, like, other than, like, this episode, the only thing I can gather from this is, like... It got a one-off manga the following year, written by uh, the creator Ito, and then it just got like a 13-episode anime from April 99 to June 99, which was also produced by Sunrise, so they still had the same crew on, but yeah, kind of fall by the wayside. A very big difference of impact between the two. So that being said, I am not surprised that Outlaw Star got a spinoff, because it honestly makes a lot of sense. Like, with a world this big and uh, Ito trying to push his, like, shared universe, like, it only makes sense to, like build like more stories within the same world i mean especially if you got more stories in you too why not yeah i mean this world's big and grand you, got, you gotta have plenty of other stories to tell anyway the outlaw star crew has been arrested as they're suspected of being pirates as they were found raiding another pirate ship and as they're being detained angel links attempts to help a civilian ship in distress but it turns out to be a ruse bit of a trojan horse sort of thing here and the outlaw star crew doesn't waste any time and they jump into action and they even end up uh, saving uh, Luchasaurus over here. You know, being being nice to him after he's so rude and arresting them. There is one moment I want to point out with uh, Suzuka where she uh, takes out two of the guys with a pipe and she says with 100% sincerity, that's one way to get them to pipe down. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Never. Suzuka, that's not you. <laughs> like, I don't know if she was trying to make a pun, like, in kayfabe, like, she just said that, and it was just accidental. <laughs> but I did like that it cuts back to the rest of the crew, and they all, all kind of have, like, the look on their face going all like, uh, no, no. Oh, maybe, maybe that's one way you lay the pipe? Uh, 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 uh okay. 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 <laughs> We're not gonna Austin Powers this and come yeah. up with bad puns. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's not a way to get ahead in life. <laughs> so, they use the Outlaw Star to fight off the pirates, and Angel Lynx allows them to do so. And then Angel Lynx works with them as a dues here. He wants to show Gene how it's really done. So, like, they're firing off all of their cannons on their ship, too, as they're fighting with the grappler arms. And so the battle ends with Gene using the Outlaw Star to deliver a Roman Reigns Superman punch through one of the <laughs> ships and blows it up. Pretty sweet. It's sweet. And as a reward, Dues and Valeria let the crew go free, and they give them a hefty amount of Dragonite, too, which is a material in this world. So when I hear that, I can't help but think of the Pokemon. I can't help but think of, like, Unobtainium. <laughs> <laughs> or no, what was it called? Can't get enoughium? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, farewell, Angel Links. We'll see you again one day, and you'll be accompanied by a 16-year-old girl with a mysterious pass. Will we do an Angel Links episode? Maybe not. Probably yes. not. <laughs> Just someone out there tell us so we don't have to. Yes, please. <laughs> so I don't have to actually watch it. <laughs> And if you want to tell us, uh, we have an email, animebaybaypod at gmail.com. That's animebaybaypod at gmail.com. <laughs> I'll probably read it. Maybe not. Who knows? Send send us an essay. We will read it. You know, three pages, double-spaced, and I expect... Cite all your sources. Yes, yes, make sure. Proper bibliography in the back. Mm-hmm. Double-spacing. Yes. <laughs> make sure indentation with each paragraph. <laughs> and have it on my desk by uh, 9 o'clock next week. High school rules, people. You know, remember remember MLA. <laughs> anyway, moving right along, Jim gets the spotlight next. As uh, while the Outlaw Star is getting some repairs, Jim makes his way to a nearby park and finds a pair of adorable cats. And then we meet their owner, a girl who looks to be about Jim's age. As uh, this is also Hanmio of the Onten 7 right here. 
And you know, as we get to this episode, I will rescind one comment I may have made earlier, I may have agreed with um, with you. I am I'm actually going to rescind that. He is not a wiener kid. <laughs> he's actually a he's a great kid. He's a cool kid. I, I say it I say wiener kid with love. He's he's a good boy. I mean I, I, I give him the proper respect. He's a cool kid, he's 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 gotta handle the situation. He's much more business minded than Gene is. Yeah, like even in this episode we do get the opening narration where it gets over that he keeps Gene in check. Without Jim, Gene probably would have died somewhere. And good computer skills, too. He's not hes not just like a helpless kid companion or anything. He's very competent. Also, we see that he can drive cars, too. Yes, yes, he's got surprisingly good uh, driving skills, despite the fact that he can't see over the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but what's going on here? Jim looks to be uh, spitting with this girl here. He's got a crushy-washy. Hey, childhood love. And we do get a nice moment where Gene finds out and just kind of starts teasing him a bit, saying like, hey, if you want some pointers, I'm there to help you. I got the experience. And they call it puppy love. (laughs) (laughs) But also, don't go to Gene for dating advice. Or if you do, do the exact opposite of what he tells you to do. Yes, do the opposite of everything. (laughs) He's got like that Zap Brannigan levels of like dating advice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jim, when you're at it, when you're with your girl at dinner, use these lines. My favorite part of the woman is the boobies. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we get some real cute interactions between Jim and Hanmio, and everything's everything's all so nice with these two. It's not going to end well, is it? No. <laughs> they were the ones piling a ship that originally attacked the outlaw star as they're trying to kill them, and then she and her cats go back to finish off the job as they're trying to, as they're trying to leave the planet because she's a member of the Anten Seven. Yep. And then the two ships duke it out, and at this point, I was like. Oh, God, Jim's going to have, like, that sky-high moment from Tiger and Bunny. It's totally the sky-high moment. Where they're going to fight, and then she dies, and he's completely unaware that it was her. I killed my possible girlfriend, and now I'm just, like, now I'm just, like, waiting for Godot at the end of the episode. I'm stuck in a park. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) come on. Why do you gotta do us like that? Why do you gotta do that? And, like, within five months of us doing both episodes here. Oh, man, I can't take that. (laughs) Because, like, they have to go back for more repairs, and he's, like, waiting in the park for, even at a fountain, no less, just, like, sky high. <laughs> it was, uh, just, you know, he got Jim and Hanmio just, like, sky high in his Metropolis girlfriend. Oh, man. But there is at least a nice bit where Jim leaves the park, it's at sunset, he's feeling down, but then Gene is there to wait for him, the first person to talk to. We don't hear what he says, but it seems very, very comforting for the two. Yeah. So, let's move on from Jim's heartbreak as we look to get more info on the Galactic Leyline. As the crew investigates a planet full of ancient ruins. And there's even, like, the opening narration where they say, like, ancient ruins across, like, different planets all over the galaxy seem to be made by, like, different alien races. You know, kind of implying that maybe, like, oh, the pyramids or Stonehenge were also made by alien races. All of them created the, the, red, the red road poneglyphs that will lead to the One Piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that can only be read by one Nico Robin. <laughs> we need to find her, but not kill her. Or some tribe of three-eyed people. Or yeah, something whatever. like that. <laughs> whatever. They got that power. <laughs> oh, hey, did somebody order a couple of pricks? Ah, the McDougal brothers are back. And Harry tries to make a pass at Melfina again, kind of going almost full in from One Piece right here, just uh, not really taking no for an answer and kind of going, getting more and more violent. Yeah, because these guys are unhinged. I do like that the scene with uh, Harry and Melfina is also interspliced with the scene between Jean and Suzuka talking about Melfina too, and also kind of getting getting over the fact that uh, 
Jean really wants to keep his promise with Melfina to help her find her pass, but he's fe- he feels really bad that he hasn't made much progress since making that promise. Yeah. But yeah, once a- once again with these little moments, they do go a long way for Jean. Yeah, they they really make they really make the they really make the characters in the long run. Jean confronts Harry, and Harry fights him with like his newest mechanical upgrade, as he has like a big dumb Avatar mech suit right here. <laughs> this continues until an earthquake hits, with uh, both parties escaping the crumbling planet. We do get a moment where Melfina assures Jean that she wants to be with him up until the very end. And the crew ends up on an outpost, and there they come in contact with a Professor Gwen Khan, played here by Milton James. He's actually been appearing throughout the entire series, kind of coming in contact with the crew here and there, but uh, I chose to talk about him now because this is where he makes his real impact on the series. Yeah, this is where he really starts to enter the picture. Yeah, like now he's a main player within the show. And he's uh, no less an oddball than anyone else in the series. No, just kind of par for the course when it comes to, like, the weirdos we find in the series. As he uses a code word to put Melfina to sleep and directs Gene to go to a certain prison if he wants to find more information on the ley line. Which means uh, Gene's got to go full uh, prison break right here, just like Dracula and Chris Redfield. Yup, gotta get in and get out and get the information. And also the prison right here is actually pretty interesting. Where, like, it's the way it's set up, as it's controlled by the warden... Who's in like a tube, and he can control all of the robots that act like guards, so he can communicate while also fight off uh, the prisoners without actually having to be there. Right, right. And also, this planet that they're on actually has gravity that is much heavier than any other planets. They say three uh, Gs to be exact. And the warden would like to thank the uh, the the great the the great robot contributions by Boston Dynamics, <laughs> <laughs> making the world a better place with robotics. <laughs> Such a good Earth company. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> and also, like, with the uh, the gravity here, like, uh, if you escape the pr- the actual prison, you'll be caught by the gravity, and you're just going to be collapsed on the ground. You can't move. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like the uh, the magnet boots from the prison in Face Off. <laughs> so, while in the slammer, Gene hooks up with another prisoner, a guy named Sayo Wong, played here by Daniel Warren. And this is the man Gene has to get info from, but uh, he's not talking. He's also being kind of a cindere to Gene here. You know, Gene wants to talk to him and he's all, he's just ignoring him. <laughs> just, it's, it's kind of fun. Yeah. Anyway, Gene wants to break him out, but Wong's resigned himself to be locked up until the day he dies. Like, there's no way anyone's getting out. We even see, like, a, an escape attempt. But that guy is caught and, pres- and presumably beaten by the robots. Mm-hmm. It's a very tough situation. Well, also I want to point out this weird moment where, like, uh, they're in, like, a prison sauna for some reason. Yeah, sauna in prison? That seems more like a luxury. Yeah, like, that's it's like, wait, is this a punishment, or...? No, they look to be relaxing in a sauna. Oh, this isn't too bad, actually. Yeah. Maybe, maybe this actually is a minimum security prison. <laughs> <laughs> what white-collar crime did I commit to get here? <laughs> or maybe it's like a sauna, but it's not hot enough. Mmm, maybe. It's a little too cold. You're not getting, like, any kind of, like, actual steam. You're just, like, sweating, and you're just like, ah, oh, fuck, like, I, I'm, I'm just getting smellier by the minute. Can we can we turn up the heat? Nope. 85 degrees, exactly. Oh, man. <laughs> but also seeing, like, this kind of situation here, I'm just thinking, like, oh, this is a preview for what's coming next in the next episode. Little, uh... little taste. <laughs> <laughs> when, we, when we get there. <laughs> but Gene's spirit is able to win Wong over. You know, he, he can't resist that star wind charm. So they devise a plan to escape. First, they get into a fight, and during so, they're able to get some uh, special items from contraband after throwing some stuff around. And then they get themselves intentionally sent to their uh, solitary confinement. But while on the transport train, that's when they make their escape, and then they walk out to the North Pole of the entire planet. 
and we get like a real creative way of escaping where Gene uses a magnetic monopole that was stashed away in uh, what looked like a compass that he brought into prison with him. And since they're on the north pole of the planet, he drops the south monopole, which goes into the ground because of the gravity. Then he attaches the north monopole to his belt, which pushes him up towards the sky using the magnetic uh, push. Ah, clever. Yeah, I'm just like, that's really good, actually. I Very nice. Very nice. And then Wong's in tow kind of hanging on to him while they're waiting for the outlaw star to pick them up. <laughs> And they make their escape, and Wong gives Gene the device which contains the coordinates to the galactic ley line. It's a bit brief, but uh, I did like a bit of the buddy-buddy the moments between uh, Gene and Wong here in this episode. Yeah, it was cool to see. Yeah, makes me wish that he kind of came back a little bit later. Yeah, it does kind of make you. And Khan wakes up Malfina, which was also part of the deal. He's like, and then they're all like, okay, we're done with you now, Khan. Now fuck off. <laughs> As they just knock him out, and then they just tell Wong to drop him off someplace. Someplace <laughs> far away. Yes, that'll do. <laughs> and now... For what we all came to see, hardcore nudity! <laughs> shake, shake, shake. It's shake, shake, shake. Shake your booty. booty. <laughs> it's the raunchiest episode of the entire series, folks. The episode that was skipped over in the initial Toonami broadcast because there's so much nudity. You cannot edit this episode down for like a for a kid audience. I don't blame them because, like, if they tried to edit this down, the episode would only be, like, five minutes long. They just go to, yeah, it's just the gang going to Sex Joke uh, sex joke Planet. <laughs> yep, a big Hot Springs Planet to get some R&R, but it's just wall-to-wall TNA. We, l- literally a planet dedicated entirely to just being a sauna episode. Yeah. <laughs> and the animators are clearly working overtime on this because they, they make sure every curve and jiggle is lovingly animated (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and yet there's still plot in this episode too this is actually a real important episode (laughs) to the series because they because they act because like gene realizes he needs to like if they're gonna go after the galactic ley line they need to like go packing so he's got to like actually go somewhere to get caster shells and this is the only place to really get caster shells in in the world yes and uh we had to actually wait 17 years to the month for this episode to air on TV here, as uh, February 25th, 2018 was when this episode finally aired on Toonami, as since we're on Adult Swim now, we can get away with more suggestive material. Though they did have to edit out some nipples here and there. Right, as they as you would have to. But also at the same time, like watching this, it's actually kind of shocking how horny this episode is, because they, they take a hard right into horny town. Yeah, very hard right. It's, it's like the Hot Springs episode of Gurren Lagann, except Gene doesn't have, like, a pig mole attached to his dick. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, it's cranked up to 11 in that regard. And, like, I remember hearing stories about this episode, like, oh, yeah, this Hot Springs episode of It's Outlaw weird. Star. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, but it's important. <laughs> but they skipped over it, so, like, we missed a big plot point. But it's also, but but that's not the only thing going on this on this episode, because it also has a really funny uh, running gag where, um... A, a member of the N107 is also trying to assassinate them constantly throughout the episode. Yep, Toby Guerra. But he comically keeps getting thwarted in, like, just funny little deus ex machinas that happen. Like, he kind of keeps wily coyoting himself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> and also, this is an episode where if you wanted to see the outlaw star girls in bikinis, this is your episode. And, and also, uh, like me in Vegas, Gene was rocking a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> Very nice look for him. And there's also a moment where we get full frontal nudity from Asia, And also butts. Lots and lots of butts. 
Yep, yep. The 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 kind of yep. This this is this is certainly a <laughs> this is certainly a this is certainly a weird episode. This is the kind of episode where if they somehow managed to air it back in two thousand one, it would be the episode where kids watching had to make sure they had the remote with the uh, channel back button so that if their parents walked into the living room, they'd press it and they'd go back to like Nickelodeon or something. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no no no, I'm watching SpongeBob. Classic strategy. Yeah, <laughs> and keep the volume really really low so that they don't hear anything. Ah yes, yeah, smart. And always look out at the corner of your eye everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, what actual plot happens in this episode though? Ah, uh, yes, as Gene is trying to get some rare caster shells from two priests, uh, Ark, played here by Kirk Thornton, and Hadugal, played here by Steve Kramer. But uh, to get these uh, caster shells, he's got to get some lewd footage of a lady priest named Ert, played here by Sarah Cyphers. And we do get a really funny moment where, like, Gene gets caught up in all the uh, wily coyote shenanigans where, like, he's trying to, like, get up to this mountain where no men are allowed, and he keeps tripping over traps, which sends giant rolling snowballs that sends him flying into, like, other bathhouses, too. Or, like, it's pelted by snowballs and everything. It's a goofy episode. It really is. And after several failed attempts, Jean finally gets to Ert, and she gets him the caster shells he needs no problem. And she even gives him the sexy footage, too. You know, makes a special video for him and the uh, the two priests. Even though it's rigged with a bomb. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, uh, they get the video, and she's all like, if you wanted to see me doing something nasty... You should have told me. <laughs> hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, come on! Hey, mind if I hang out and watch? <laughs> All right, you dog. <laughs> so, you want to see a little footage of Earth Nude? Oh. <laughs> well, let's get started. <laughs> Just a little bit longer. Almost there. <laughs> oh, you're such naughty, dirty boys. <laughs> Man, this is great. Show us more. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what do you suppose those numbers are for? Who cares when there's better things to look at? Oh, yeah! Yeah, forget it. <laughs> are you still watching me? You guys really are the biggest idiots I think I've ever seen. Three, two, one, zero. I should have known she wouldn't do cheesecake like that without an ulterior motive. Ah, yes, but it was worth it. I saw her naked. Now I can die content. <laughs> and then they're just watching, going all like, ha, 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 oh my god. Like, yeah, 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 that kind of 90s behavior. Yep. And then they notice there was like a timer in the corner during like this whole strip tease, and they're like, hey, what are those numbers for? Eh, who cares? And then, three, two, one... Zero, boom, just explodes. <laughs> Imagine if, like, say, like, Clips for Sale has that option where, like, you buy a video and it explodes right in your face when you're done. <laughs> They'd probably make a killing. Mm, quite possibly. 
But uh, no, Gene finally has the, uh, he's finally got the proper bullets to confront whatever comes ahead. Though uh, he only gets one of each because uh, if you use these shells more than once, they will drain your life force and kill you. Yeah, because he's got some particularly powerful ones on him now, too, that uh, that might fuck him off if he, if he abuses them. Yeah, so only use them when he really, really needs to. And so ends uh, Outlaw Star's sexy adventures right here. A final bit of levity before we get into the final game here. You get you have your time to get horny, now you gotta get serious. So, Outlaw Star, the McDougals, and Khan, and Hanzako, and the Seven, the cast is all gathered as they're close to the ley line, and the fight for it is on as we have this big epic space battle between these three factions right here. Even a Katarl Katarl ship comes in as uh, we find out that Asia's been sending, like, you know, updates to, like, her uh, friends and family back home, and that's where they know where they are. Come on, Aisha! Come on! Really? You screw us over like that? She just wanted to make sure that her friends knew she was safe. (laughs) (laughs) And the teams enter the ley line, and they find a cylindrical figure covered in black and gold, and then that's where they find out that's the heart of the ley line right there. They go in there, and that's where they can find what they're looking for. They enter the figure, and then have to proceed the rest of the way on foot. And then all the teams come meeting face-to-face-to-face right here. It's like reality begins to start breaking down around them, too. Yeah, and, like, we see the inside of this, like, the heart of the ley line, and it's just so... It's so weird, but also calming at the same time. Like, the golden hue, but also it feels almost like a forest area. Yeah, very ethereal. It's very cool. And we have a mysterious voice calling out to them, asking, Why have they returned, and what are their desires? And then at that point, they transport away Melfina... And now the chase is on to go find her within this maze of the ley line. And also I want to say I like that since this is the penultimate episode right here, instead of the uh, usual narration, we just get like a nice little montage of Melfina with the crew while she sings the uh, the first ending. Mm, yeah, because now she's kind of having like everything taken away from her in this moment since it's now pretty much confirmed that she is the key to the galactic ley line. Yes. Like she's literally being turned into an object for everyone's dreams to be accomplished. And as Gene makes his way through this golden maze, he and the rest of the crew have to deal with, like, the members of the Seven, too, as uh, Suzuka takes on Hitoriga, as it's revealed that he actually killed her entire family as part of a contract. And she's been out for revenge against him and the K-Pirates. That's why she's been so focused on fighting these guys and why she stuck around with uh, Gene and the crew. Mmm, right. Very good stuff. And we also see, like, during this fight that he actually makes himself to look like Suzuka. As that was weird. It's a bit of a bit of mind games right there. Yeah, but like even I even, even as I saw that in the moment, I'm like, what? Yeah. Like what? Yeah. Like why? <laughs> you're obsessed with her. Why? Yeah. That's that makes no sense to me. Yeah, but he, he's a he's a wacky cat, so you know. Yeah. And then Asia is facing off with uh, Jukai, and like the dude may be old, but he can still go. And that's where Asia goes into her full beast mode form and is able to like stop this guy. It's weird, though, because they kind of built that guy up as, like, having some, like, a great amount of mystery to him or something. Like, his abilities were unknown, but it's, like, turns out he can just, he can just spin around real fast and attack people. Yeah. It's like, well, that that was your secret technique that you that you spin around going, woo, 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 woo. <laughs> He's secretly the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good stuff. Yeah, unfortunately, he doesn't go, like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> No, but he does, like, squeeze out, no, but he does, like, squeeze out, like, fucking, like, blue, like, blue raspberry blue juice yeah. as he, like, dies. <laughs> it's all coming out everywhere, his ears and everything. <laughs> and Gene is going one-on-one with Hamushi, and he's able to beat her, but uh, he had to do so by using the, the special caster shell. Which just shoots out a black hole. 
It's a bit like the uh, the quad laser from Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Just a little mini black hole that sucks in whatever it comes into contact with. Yep, but that also drains Gene's life force every time he uses it, so that's one right there. Yep. He's only got a few more. Meanwhile, Harry finds Melfina first, but he's followed by Hanzako, and these two square off, and Harry does have a new robot body, but Hanzanko just wrecks the shit out of him. Like, it gets really brutal, especially, like, where he just crushes his body and just blood starts just flying everywhere, looking like an Evangelion death scene. Ah, uh, but I do love when villains fight villains, though. It is cool to see. It's and, satisfying. You know, let them fight. <laughs> and Harry had it coming. He had it coming. Like, you know, seeing him get, like, crumpled up like that almost makes me feel bad for him. Almost. Yeah, he the, 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 the series kind of makes you... It tries to make you feel something for him in the, in these final moments of the series. You know, like, really getting over, like, his whole more... Him being more machine and everything like that and kind of, like, losing his humanity. I think it came across more as pathetic to me rather than, like, like actually tragic. Yeah, you're not sympathetic. You're just... You just kind of pity him. Because I feel like I still don't, like, understand his full background or story, really. Like, what made him into this. Yeah, but they still... They try to get some, like, nice moments where, like, Ron finds him and, like, he's actually really broken up by the fact that his brother is dead right before him. Although even Milfina's calling out to him, and I'm all like, why would you? Like, he was just creepy to you he was before. Cre- he slapped you. I mean, I guess he also had, like, some cybernetic thing going on with him as well that kind of connected him to Melfina. Like, oh, there's someone out there like me, but I don't know. I, I think it could have been pulled off better. Yeah, like, or maybe get more, get across more that uh, Melfina, how, like, she's such a good person that she doesn't want to see anyone get her like no one deserves to like die like this i think that's what they were trying to get to in the end but i think it could have been pulled off a little better a little bit yeah so hanzanko uses melfina to open up the gate of the ley line and enters with khan following behind him as for gene and ron the two fight and they have a they have a quick fight with gene using one of his caster shells to send ron flying but still like uh the blast from this shell does knock him for a loop and he does have like a bit of a vision where like he remembers back to when he was chatting up with hilda and also like his dad too and just it still also serves to, like, really push his motivation, you know, like, what is he what is he fighting for? His life, his life is literally flashing before his eyes. Literally. <laughs> so, with only two caster shells left, Gene heads through the gate for one final showdown with Hanzanko. And Harry does manage to help out Tool by opening the final portal before he fucking dies. Thanks. Not a fan of you, but thanks. You, you did one good thing in your life. You get one point <laughs> against, I don't know, 96 bad points. <laughs> Time to close things out. At the heart of the ley line lies a being with power to grant your deepest desires that can also use uh, Melfina as a bit of a mouthpiece to kind of create this, you know, visage of like this almost goddess-like creature right here. And what is this thing though? Like, I was kind of, I was kind of having some, I had a bit of confusion as to what this thing actually was. From what I can gather, because I was also pretty confused by this, is that this is supposed to be like the ruler of the galactic ley line right here, the the spirit that watches over it and that can grant you anything you want and that has, like, all the knowledge of the universe. It's sort of like the connection point between fates, I guess, and lets you rewrite fates. Yeah. I guess this is, this is pretty much, like, the god of this world because they also say, like, they have knowledge of, like, Anything and everything within the world, too. Yeah, but, like... You can kind of warp it to, like, how you how you want. Th- this this is too much to add in, like, your final episode. They kind of almost kind of go full Avon Kellyan right here with, like, yeah. the weird shit. Yeah, it, it's not too... Eff- it's not very effective. <laughs> but uh, we find out what everyone's deepest desires are here, you know. 
Hanzanko, he wants power. He's a megalomaniac. Khan, he just wants knowledge. He wants to know everything about the universe. And Jean, he just simply wants Melfina back. And we now know that her, what her background is, that she is just merely a key for the Leyline project, just a puppet, just to open this door and get you to this point. And it's also, it's very disheartening for her, you know, like wondering like, what is her big purpose? And it, and it is, you're just a tool. That's pretty much it. Yeah. So Jean fires the last of his shells at Hanzanko, but the caster and Hanzanko's Tau magic cancel each other out, killing them both. Like he gets caught in the little black hole and Jean is just on the ground covered in blood, all crumpled up. And then things get really, really trippy right here. Like, Evangelion trippy right here. <laughs> I wouldn't say to an Evangelion's levels. No, but, it can't be that bad, but... But like, real, but, like, reality is starting to break down somewhat. Yeah, and you're just, like, as a viewer, you're questioning, like... You're just kind of, like, drawn to the screen. That's what's happening right at this moment right yeah, here. The, the characters are entering some minor levels of om- omnipotence right here. And uh, great magical power... Yeah, I'll splice it in. See if you at home can also figure this out. connected to the will and desires of the galactic ley line. Hazanko's Tau magic and your caster's power have somehow reacted and cancelled each other out, and we've all ceased functioning. Are we dead, then? The answer to that is both yes and no. The will of the ley line is keeping us alive in a different location. In my current state, I can explain to you what the galactic ley line is. It's like a galactic library, left by a now-extinct race that possessed a highly advanced understanding of science and technology. However, to humanity, we may think of it as being like a machine god. After you've finished healing yourself and returned to reality, the ley line will probably grant you every desire. Are you saying that this isn't reality? This is data. Is this cyberspace? Hello, Jude. Thanks to you, I've learned what I wanted to know. Now I have the answers to my questions. Well, goodbye then. I am Data, and Data's me. Goodbye. Goodbye. He makes absolutely no sense. This is the Data Repository. Professor Khan's objective must have been to gain as much knowledge as possible. Jude, is there something you desire? Say it. By using the ley line, I can grant anything that your heart desires and make it real. There isn't anything that the ley line can give me. All I really want is for you to return with me. Oh no, I made you cry again. Melfina, what is it that you wish for? I want to stay who I am. I want to be with you forever, Jean. Well, that's what I want too. Come away with me, Melfina. Right now. Yes. Oh. What is it? Hasanka was preparing to leave here right now. He has all the power that he wished for. If we don't stop him, the entire universe will be in danger. 
What should we do? We'll join forces. I'll combine my power with yours, and then we'll fight him to the death. So they are transported into the heart of the ley line with uh, Melfina and Khan, where they are revived to have their wishes granted right here. You know, Jean's back and uh, Hanzan goes back too. And Khan, he acquires all the knowledge of the universe and then merges with the ley line right now. He has become one with the ley line. And he just fucks off, I guess, because whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm the smartest man in the universe right now. I don't need any more. Bye. <laughs> While Hanzanko receives his ultimate power and becomes the most powerful man in the universe. And now the time has come to finally end things with Hanzanko. And we have a big, big final battle against Hanzanko, who's turned into like this almost eldritch being right here fusing with his ship and stuff like it's it's it actually all feels pretty grand enough for a finale it really does and just the animation just like following the outlaw stars like doing these tracking and swing shots all around hanzanko as it's flying around using its grappler arms to fight mm -hmm. it's so cool and also while the outlaw star is fighting his physical body we get like gene and hanzanko having a fist fight in this mental cyberspace right here yeah, it is somewhat reminiscent of Gurren Lagann in that regard, too. It really is. It's, it's To the point where I think, like, Gurren Lagann could have maybe took that as inspiration. I wouldn't be surprised if Gurren ripped that off, because <laughs> there's a lot of other stuff that take they take inspiration from throughout that series. Right. And so, Jean, Melfina, Jim, Aisha, and Suzuka, and the Outlaw Star itself, combine their strength to put an end to Hanzanko by flying the ship right into his face. Simple end, but a cool end. Yeah, very cool end for a... Uh... Really not that great villain. No, like, the most we ever see of him was the Onten 7 introduction, and then this final arc right here. He, he's just, like, barking orders, but he's just kind of like a generic, like, space crime lord. Yeah. There really isn't much to him. He he just looks intimidating, and he's there to m motivate the plot. Yeah. He's the McDougals were better villains than him. Yeah. Maybe that's why they created the McDougals, because um, maybe they thought that the Onten 7 wouldn't be that good of a villain, so they gotta have supplementary villains to, like, make things a bit better. Mm, I could maybe understand that on some level. Mm -hmm. Like, that could be a thing that Sunrise, they kind of feel like, no, 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 we need these guys to be more of a focus because Hanzanko barely appears in the series. I mean, at least with the McDougals, they actually tried to tie them in with, like, they tried to tie them in emotionally with, like, the characters and stuff. And, like, you know, you've got, like, Ron and his mind games, but you've got Harry and his sociopathy and his obsession with Mofina. It's, it's stronger. And so afterwards, uh, the ley line moves to a new location where, uh, with the ley line maiden half of Melfina being the one to watch over it now, so that half of her is now one with the ley line, and now she is free to, like, just be herself. Yep, she she passed on her princess of heart powers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it kind of is that. And Aisha and Suzuka go their separate ways, and Jean, Jim, and Melfina return to Sentinel-3. And I do like the brick joke here, where after they get back to Sentinel-3, we cut to Jean in a jail cell because he's still in trouble for... You know, destroying that spaceport earlier in the series. <laughs> it's a nice way to bring it around. Yeah. In fact, the, these ending scenes actually kind of bring the whole series around quite well. Yeah, and I also like the nice scene where Melfina is in a graveyard and she's paying her respects to, like, everyone who died that was connected to the ley line in some way. Yeah. Like, it's very nice. And and then also, like, she and Jean have a moment where, like, now she vows to, like, live her life as herself. You know, her past is in the past now. It's all about the future and what's before her. Yeah, it's a very sweet scene between the two. And eventually, all the members of the Outlaw Star crew reunite and head out to another region of the galaxy in search of a grand new adventure. And though they say, see you again, but uh, other than Angel Links, this was it for Outlaw Star. Like, there are plans to make a sequel OVA called Sword of the Wind, but uh, production never got underway, so... Yeah, it never came to be. No, like, kind of surprising, because, you know, I feel there is... You could do more with these characters. But at the same time, 
I'm all right with leaving things off here. Yeah, it's a good proper end of the series. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to think about what happens, you know, just leave it in your head or write fan fiction or whatever, you know, to be continued in your mind, like at the end of Carol on Tuesday. Yeah, precisely. So, curtain down. Final thoughts. Outlaw Star, it's an overall pretty fun space adventure series. Um, it's got some great animation, good action, I mean, good characters. Like, it's all good, solid, fun cast with, like, fun personalities. Like, there's in a pretty well-realized uh, world with its own uh, bit of lore, which maybe in some parts isn't as well-realized as I would have hoped it would have been, but uh, still makes for an overall very fun experience. Yeah, I gotta say, like, this is... Uh... A really, really fun space adventure series, you know. Even though it came out around the same time as Cowboy Bebop and Bebop is the much bigger hit, I still feel like Outlaw Star does. It still does a good enough job. It still does. It's still just as good as Bebop, I would say. But also at the same time, I can also kind of see like why Bebop has more of an appeal than Outlaw Star does. Well, because it's at this point we need to answer why has its legacy not lasted as long to this day. Yeah, like. One reason I also thought of could be is that uh, it aired on uh, Cartoon Network during the day, which means it was kind of uh, kind of handicapped a bit with like the TV Y7 rating. It couldn't like go all out because they had to deal with edits, mm -hmm. and it wouldn't be until years and years later for it to like finally go uncut on TV. Or if you wanted to see it uncut, you'd have to buy the DVDs. Whereas with Cowboy Bebop, that aired pretty much uncut on Adult Swim, and that had kind of more of a wider audience there too. I think maybe, yeah, I think maybe circulation could maybe have one explanation for that. I, this time around though, I began to think that maybe there were maybe, there was like something deeper to it though, and I think it kind of goes into just like theming and like the, the, the concept between the two. Uh, Cowboy Bebop is so much higher concept than, yeah. than, than Outlaw Star. <laughs> it was going, it took so many different stylistic uh, choices and risks in some ways, and really knew to um, and really knew how to make itself into a style all upon its own and stuff, while reaching while still reaching for some very um, like high like fi like philosophical thinking ideas with its characters and like its borrowing of like the noir genre. Outlaw Star, when I watch it though, I feel like it's just trying to be just a fun series within like it's like sci-fi genre within the sci-fi genre i don't feel like it's really it's i don't want to say it's less ambitious than cowboy bebop but it's i think it's just comfortable with what it's trying to be just a fun adventure but that doesn't make for a long-lasting series yeah or like, like not, not or i shouldn't say long-lasting but like long-lasting within the public consciousness yeah like outlaw star they're perfectly fine with doing like just regular Star Wars, Star Trek-like adventures. They don't need to do experimental episodes like Bebop did, where, like, one episode is, like, fully noir, or, like, one episode's, like, straight up, like, a horror film or something like that. Like, they don't need to do that, which is good. Like, I, I like that, but at the same time, that's what put Bebop over, that experimentation, like, willing to go, like, outside the box with a lot of their yeah, stories. Yeah, Cowboy Bebop was doing so much more new things than what Outlaw Star was doing, in my opinion. And it also helped in Bebop's case that even though it does have an overarching plot with Spike, Julia, and the Syndicate, it's mostly episodic. Like, nearly all of the episodes are, like, pretty much anytime when someone talks about Bebop, they just talk about the standalone episodes, you know, Toys in the Attic or Mushroom Samba. That's what put Bebop over because it's more accessible. Like, you can flip on any episode and it doesn't matter where you start. Whereas with Outlaw Star, 
the overarching plot plot is much more prominent in the story. I mean, I don't know how far I would, like, stay with that, because, like, the overarching plot to, like, Cowboy Bebop is still, like, important. I mean, it's it's Spike's story, like, over time, you know? It's, like, all their individual stories, and, like, I think those are a lot, like, strong... They're, are, they're all individually so much stronger than anything that is in uh, Outlaw Star, because the individual plot lines are just Aisha is comic relief, Suzuka is looking for a mur like, the, the one who murdered her uh, family... And she doesn't encounter until the very end of the series. Like, but like that all works for Outlaw Star. It's yeah. Both series are doing their own separate things, but it doesn't take a genius to see why Cowboy Bebop had such a more le such a stronger lasting legacy. Could also another thing be that uh, Bebop is not as anime as Outlaw Star is. Bebop has more of a Western appeal. I mean, it was trying to be so much. It was trying to be so much more than just any other space anime at the time. Yeah, like you look at the characters in Bebop, they kind of look like regular people. Whereas, like in Outlaw Star, as cool as they look, they're very anime with like cat girls, samurai women, and and like naked women. It's, it's a di it's a different of style. That's all. That's yeah. all it is. Well, I feel like with Bebop, like you kind of have more of a reach with like that style over an Outlaw Star. Like, say if you're a regular guy, regular Joe Schmo who turns on the TV, who doesn't watch anime, you see Bebop and you're, you'd be more interested in that. I mean, mm, that's what that's what I would think. I don't think that so much. I think stylistically they're both, like, they both look fine for what they were, like. Yeah. Like, both doing their own thing. I don't think it's so much as, like, I just don't ascribe too much to the idea that, like, Westerners would be so much more into it, or that, like, regular Joe Schmoes would be more into Bebop than just, um... Outlaw Star or something. Like, I think it's more just a matter of, like, Cowboy Bebop was trying, was just a lot more, was trying for some higher concepts and was a lot more ambitious in, like, its style, in its stylistic choices. Whereas Outlaw Star was just fine being a fun space adventure. And a fun space adventure is fine, but <laughs> it doesn't stick in people's minds as much as any of the shit that Cowboy Bebop was attempting. Yeah. Because that was just... That really got into your mind and made you think more. Outlaw Star is just good fun. It's not trying to make you think about the bigger picture of life, the universe, and everything. It's looking at life, the universe, and everything, and it's just like, how, what kind of fun can we have with that, you know? Yeah, and of course, like, the only reason, like, we're really having this conversation, like, making comparisons between the two is the fact that they're both from the same studio, and they came out roughly around the same time. Yeah, it's 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 hard to not compare the yeah, two. Yeah, like, if, say, Bebop came first, and then Outlaw Star came later, or vice versa, then you probably wouldn't have to deal with those comparisons, but the fact that Sunrise released both at the same time, I don't know, maybe it kind of hurt one of the series in a way. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, but thankfully that at least a lot of people within the anime community still agree that Outlaw Star is still a very good series on its own. Like, it's Yeah, it still... is still very good. I think the accomplishments of the animators in particular should not go unnoticed. Like, animating on film and, like, still looking good almost 25 years later is just an accomplishment. Yeah, that still deserves high praise and it should be studied. Yeah, and, like, even though, it, like, as anime as the character designs are compared to Bebop, it's like, they're still very fantastic looking. They're all super expressive, like, in their movements, in their facial, facial expressions. And, of course, like, the cast, like, they work so well with these characters. Like, for for a dub done in the late 90s, early 2000s, 
you know, a lot of those dubs are very hit and miss, but this is very, very solid for the time. Yeah, the main cast is incredibly solid and really helps to carry the whole series, which if it didn't have that, we probably wouldn't even be talking about Outlaw Star by now. Yeah, like if they did a dub compared to like, I don't know, some of the cheaper dubs from like the mid-90s where like no one knew what they were doing, but here, they, everyone knew what they were doing, despite, like, maybe technical limitations at the time. Yeah, the, the dub was quite good. Like, it almost feels like something that could have realistically came out within, like, maybe the last ten years or something. It's just a fun series, like, and also, quintessentially Toonami, like, a fun space adventure is perfect for an action cartoon block where the host is a guy in space showing you cartoons. With just enough introspection from characters to make for some nice TV, <laughs> TV commercial promos. Oh, yeah, like... That Broken Promise music video is, like, forever the classic Toonami promo. An all-time classic. Yeah, like, they even aired it when Toonami came back for that uh, April Fool's prank. Like, because of course you can. Like, everyone knows, like, the opening lines, you know, Space, a boy who has a right to dream. Yeah. And just, it's a classic series, and everyone... Everyone should go out of the way to watch it. Yeah, it does not des it does not deserve to be forgotten, so yeah, I can highly... I can definitely recommend Outlaw Star. Definitely. Thank you all for listening. I've been your host, Mikey, and you can find me at my social medias, Mikey Shiota on Twitter, MikeyShiota.tumblr.com, and Mikey Shiota on the gram. Where can you find you, buddy? You can find me at 2Bits on Twitter and Wolfish Grin on Tumblr. Follow Anime Bebe on Twitter at Anime underscore Bebe. That's Anime underscore B-A-Y, B-A-Y. Also, follow the show at AnimeBebe.podbean.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. And so, next time, Summer of Tsunami continues as we'll be covering the first ever Toonami original series. Yes, like, this little action cartoon block got its own original series made just for it. Still blows my mind to this day. Okay, still pretty sweet. That, of course, is the Immortal Grand Prix IGPX. Get ready for some futuristic roller derby racing featuring also a surprisingly star-studded voice cast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I've actually never watched uh, IGPX ever before in my life, so I'm quite looking forward to it. I missed the initial airing when it first came out, but I did watch a good amount of it when it aired on Toonami back in 2014-ish, I want to say? Mmm, okay. But it's it's been a while since then. But it'll be fun to come back and revisit this, and also just still marvel at the fact that this was made for Toonami. Like, nothing else. Like, they made it for just this little block that could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm quite curious to I'm quite curious to check out and see how it was. There's this first foray into an original work. And the first like uh collab between Toonami and uh, Production IG. Mm-hmm. First of many. Yeah. Until next time, stay safe out there, get facts, get boosted, wear a mask, Black Lives Matter, transfers of human rights, stop Asian hate, try and make it a good year. And this has been Anime, Anime Baby!
a ship like this before. It's way behind any Katao Katao ship. It won't move unless you're naked. Oh, that's very kinky, wouldn't you say? How dare you talk about the galaxy's fastest, most advanced ship like that? <laughs> 